And you know what? I'll be the first one to say it. I think making a podcast is harder than building a house. I mean, I've never built a house, but... <laughs> I, bet, I bet you building houses is actually really fucking easy. And I bet they just yeah. pretend that it's hard so that they could charge a lot of money for it. Oh, shit. Hello, welcome to Turnabout Podcast, the only podcast that, that'll that touch you right in the heart, right at your heartstrings, uh, well, with a spear, with a spear, uh, right, yeah. Oh no! Hi! <laughs> Hi, I'm your prosecutor host, Abby. I'm your defense host, Mish. Mish! Yes, Abby. A- Abby? That's that's me after getting stabbed by a spear. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the evil magistrate, like remember? There. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, so hey, today we are covering the second day of the third case of the first Ace Attorney game, Turnabout Samurai. Yes, this is uh, 1-3B. Is that our yeah, what, scheme? So we're calling it 1-3B, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, like officially, that. the Ace Attorney games divide their their cases into parts, right? Yes. So we have part one, part two, part three, all the way up to part six for this case. Yeah. So last episode, we covered part one and part two, which were the mm-hmm. first investigation and the first trial segment of the case. Today, we'll be com- covering part three and part four which is the second investigation and the second trial. And then mm-hmm. next time we'll be covering part five and part six of this case, which will be the final investigation and the final trial. Join now, us next time on Turnabout Podcast. All right. See you all later. <laughs> all right. Bye. <laughs> I would say that this actually does put us narratively speaking in a very interesting position. And that's that. Overall, I would say that, um, you know, you and I have played through this series as a whole. It seems that generally fans of the series recognize a lull within the third case of any. I was wondering when we were going to talk about this. Yeah, the the old third. Yeah, the third case curse, I believe. Yeah, they they call it something like that. And for this episode in particular, we're in a unique spot as it is the exact middle of the third case. Um. Generally, these are considered to be low points in the series because, um, you know, it's after the excitement of the initial setup, but before we reach the final payoff, right? Both in the overall narrative sense as well as the uh, localized narrative sense. Um, I I think this is amplified by the fact that um, I don't know if you necessarily get a sense for this, but I feel that these games strongly rely on the drama of a dramatic twist yeah like that's the most exciting part of these games are the twists and the turns and usually those really start to pop off near the end so sometimes when you're in the middle segments it kind of you kind of feel like all right like come on this is good but let's let's get to the you know let's get to the juicy twist right but um, yeah 
Well, okay, because there, there's like the the overarching juicy twist that they set up um, with this larger narrative that they're building where they keep giving, you know, these like plot threads that they're hinting at later. You know, it's like, oh, this is like the DL6 incident or this is like that trial from like five years ago. So I can kind of see where people are coming from when they talk about like third case syndrome, like, oh, this is, you know, this one off case that doesn't have anything to do with this larger story they're building uh so i get that but i still really liked this one i think there are other examples in other games just to prove that i'm not you know in the pocket of big ace attorney here <laughs> there are other games i can point to where i say okay that's like a fair criticism but i, I really like turn of samurai i like we're gonna get into it today but even with the trial segment we're going to discuss today like yeah even though it's not building to this larger story about you know phoenix wright and miles edgeworth and their history and all that there's still some pretty epic reveals just in this case so i'm actually really happy to hear that that's like sort of where you're at because uh, i feel very similarly right um overall right now my you know current opinion of this case is actually pretty high i I have a good vibe on it and I, I feel like the fact that it isn't broadly significant, uh, at least you know so far by all by all current impressions, I don't yeah. think is even necessarily to its detriment, right? I think especially being the first game, it's really important to have a case that kind of kind of just stands on its own, right? I guess really not to spoil too much for the whole case, but I would say this case can almost entirely stand on its own yeah it definitely could you you could probably extricate it from the first second and fourth case and Mm -hmm. it would hold up just entirely as a you know isolated episode Um, yeah it it is a really good storytelling you always talk about like you know building this larger narrative but yeah each one of these is its own like standalone case and i think this one you know, whether you want to call it <laughs> case three syndrome or the case three curse or whatever. Um, yeah, it is could stand in its own. I think the the one thing where the player might be lost uh, would be when uh, Maya summons Mia. You'd be like, wait, who's yeah. this lady? Yeah, that would maybe come a little out of left field. I, I feel like maybe if you're playing this case in isolation, you'd need a little like, uh, you know, a little dialogue prompt that's just like, hey, just go with it. Yeah just go with it yeah that's true that that (laughs) maybe needs a bit of context but yeah so you know what for right now we we are covering the third case turnabout samurai and we are not covering the third case turnabout big top so you know what the the clock is ticking we will get there at some point and Uh, at that that, point that's exactly before you even brought it up that's exactly (laughs) <laughs> the one I was thinking of for like my like yeah example of like uh case three syndrome that yeah I hate to say anything negative about this series that I love so much but that particular no. case uh is a bit of a slog our our reckoning will arrive one of these days yeah and we will have to confront that case but yeah. today is not that day Today, we still get to do Turnabout Samurai, which I'm looking forward to. So, what do you say we get into it? Let's do it. Okay. So, we start with part three, which is the second investigation of the case. This is coming right after the end of the first trial, during which we um, cross-examined Wendy Oldbag. And uh, we find a very huge reveal during this first trial. 
Yeah. And that is that there were other people at Global Studios during the murder, during the murder of Jack Hammer. Uh, those people chiefly were the director and the producer of The Steel Samurai, uh, though there were also uh, studio bigwigs, uh, you know, sponsors, uh, you know, programmers, that sort of thing, that were there at the time as well. And, um, you know, the judge, in his wisdom, determines that since there are these, you know, other individuals who have not been interrogated, that have not been questioned... Um, that he cannot hand down a verdict. And he gives both Phoenix and Miles one more day to conduct their investigation. So, right after the court case, same day, Phoenix and Maya, they get ready to go back out and continue their investigation. Um, which, I, me personally, I would be pretty exhausted. They had just gone through a very dramatic like four-hour trial yeah. And uh, yeah, now they're getting ready to just go back out and hit the bricks. So yeah, this whole three day limit on this like pre-trial system or whatever. Uh, yeah, you really don't catch a break. <laughs> no, for sure. But Maya is super amped up. Uh, we begin the investigation in the Wright and Co. law offices. And uh, basically, she's just like, hey, come on, let's go. Let's get to Global Studios. Let's get after this. You know, yeah. Um, and they're very really enthusiastic as usual, uh, as Maya. usual. Yeah. Uh, there really isn't too much to, um, to report from the office vis-a-vis, uh, you know, examining or anything. So we go ahead and we just head on over to global studios. So, uh, one of the key differences today in the second day of the, uh, investigation is that studio two is now part of the investigation. Right. And um, as soon as we get there, Maya suggests that we uh, that we visit Studio Two. So yeah, gum uh, gone, so he's not there to prevent you from uh, checking it out. Yeah, exactly. And you had we head on over to Studio Two, and uh, there's nobody there. And Studio Two actually looks a little different than what you might expect. What's how would you describe it? Well, it's outdoors first of all, so um, it doesn't have you know the same like cameras and equipment set up there's uh, a sturdy wooden trailer uh to your right from your perspective as the player character uh the door to that trailer is locked there's um like a flower bed surrounded with this uh basically like knee height uh spiky fence um <laughs> phoenix Wright says uh careful maya don't touch it it looks dangerous more yeah. on that later <laughs> um there's a van parked in the corner uh this point uh phoenix wright remarks i think this is the first time we learned this that he doesn't have a driver's license yeah i which I comes up a couple times later i specifically noted that as well and yeah. my first gut reaction on that was you know phoenix is 23 and he doesn't have a driver's license 24 don't add us oh my gosh i keep okay he's 24 and he doesn't you're, have you're doing it on purpose at this point aren't you you know at this point i'm just gonna age phoenix down one year in every game yeah. um but thinking about the context, right, of this game taking place in either Los Angeles or Tokyo, depending on the translation, it kind of doesn't seem that crazy to me. Well, I just think it's funny the the contrast they set up between Nick's uh, Wright and Miles Edgeworth, where you've got Edgeworth, who we later learn drives this, you know, fancy red sports car, yes. and you've got uh, poor Nick, who doesn't even have a license. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's like... 
It's like Edgeworth is like your really successful friend who has his whole life together and is just like so far ahead of where you're at. And you're just like, ah, dang, I burnt my rice in the rice cooker again or whatever, you know, like, I know, um, like, yeah, the dichotomy there is pretty funny. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I did. I thought that was an interesting detail that, that Phoenix remarks that he doesn't have a driver's license. Yeah. Um, all right. So continuing, uh, with studio two, there is, uh, an incinerator, which they say looks like it was recently installed. It's covered in soot. So it's been used. Um, you see it again, we're like outdoors. So there's a table set up, uh, with two plates on it, indicating that, uh, two people ate here recently. Uh, there's nothing left on the plates. Um, I think that's all I wrote down for Studio 2. I don't know, did yeah. I miss anything here? No, that's pretty much it. There's really no evidence to collect. There's no people to talk to. There's no music. It honestly feels Oh, this is another little... place where it, the game uses silence. Interesting. Yeah, it, it almost feels a little, like, anticlimactic to me, right? Yeah. That um, you, you hear about Studio 2 so much throughout the first trial and, yeah. you know, about the possibility of people having been there. And then you go there and it's like, Eh, yeah, it's just kind of a empty yard. Um, I, I yeah. yeah, that is kind of funny. I didn't even think about that at the time I was playing it. But yeah, it it is a little uh, anticlimactic, right? <laughs> yeah, and I guess within the broader, you know, scope, it, it kind of does fit in with what we know about Global Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it really isn't a studio at all. But you can see that, you know, there's building materials and stuff around the site. Um, And we actually get a bit more details about this uh, a little bit later. But it seems like there were plans to build a proper film set here and a proper studio. But Mm -hmm. those plans, of course, never, never went through because Global Studios started to see, you know, a decline in success after a incident five years ago. So it yeah. seems like this is, this was, again, it sort of reinforces that feeling of like a failing film studio, right? They had these plans, yeah. they were going somewhere, and then it started to fall apart. So, yeah, that's why they were only filming in like one out of the two studios. That's right. Right. So it almost feels like, uh, I don't know, like anti climax or underwhelmingness is sort of built into Studio Two, I feel like. So yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point because you're right when you say it's anticlimactic, but yeah, maybe it's intentional. It would feel more out of place if there was like a grand film studio or something, you know, if it was a big yeah. stage or whatever. So yeah, yeah it, it really does, you know, and you compare that to Studio One, which is just like this tiny room with a few backdrops and, you know, the Steel Samurai starts to feel like a pretty slapdash project. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so... Um, after that, we, we pretty much move on. I believe the, the locked door, is this the point where we hear noise coming from inside the trailer? Uh, that was later. That's later? Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so yeah, at this point, you really don't have much direction. I think as the player, you kind of just, you're like, okay, I guess I have to go somewhere else now, right? <laughs> yeah, and, pretty uh, much. <laughs> really, the only direction to go in at this point is, uh, back to the guard station. Um, and back to the employee area. So um, you head back and you go to the uh, employee area and you see that um, Penny is there. Yep. And there's a brief exchange with her where she explains that um, old bag had asked her to patch up the drain 
you know, after it came out yesterday that uh, a kid was sneaking in through the drain. Yeah, so, that's right. uh, she said she fixed it with duct tape and that uh, I wrote down that she was not too handy. Yeah, and you could see her patchwork drop job. It looks like it's literally just like either cardboard or plywood or something <laughs> yeah. that's just like duct taped against the drain, which yeah. um, I, I feel like, you know, uh, uh, we meet Cody later. I don't think that's going to stop him. I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. going to stop this fanboy if he's that committed. But yeah, so... After that, Penny goes ahead and she leaves to cover the uh, guard station for Old Bag. I believe at this point, Old Bag is being questioned by the uh, the police, so she's not yeah, able to right. cover the guard station. So, yeah, Penny goes back. And um, we, we have a brief scene here where um, it's kind of funny. Phoenix and Maya, they walk into the employee area. Penny says, hey, I just patched the drain. They say, okay, cool. Penny leaves. Maya's immediately like, hey, let's let's fucking blow up the drain again. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of funny. And it's like, again, maybe this is something I didn't think of at the time. So it doesn't seem silly, like, until I talk to you about it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that is kind of like rude. <laughs> she explains that she just like fixed this. And Maya's first thought is like, hey, let's like destroy this. It, and it is one of those things where like, I, I feel like within the dialogue, there's really not even a great justification for it either. Yeah, and you know what? I, I stand by what I said before. You know, we're talking like third case syndrome aside. I really do love Turnabout Samurai. I think it's a great case, but I think it is also early enough in the series that maybe they hadn't quite figured out everything yet. You can tell, like, um, there are some points that seem um, not even bad, but just maybe not as clean as like in later games like we were talking about the fetch quest where you gotta like you know just like get this item and bring it to this character write down the number for the security camera which is like fine but I like the way you described it Abby you were saying that it's like <laughs> these kind of pointless actions are just there to like remind you that it's a video game right <laughs> it's like here it's like yeah that is kind of odd that like <laughs> You know, uh, Penny would tell you that she just um, put in the work to repair this grate, and your first thought is like, "Hey, let's destroy it and undo her hard work here." <laughs> right? It's like it's like Shutakumi standing there, like, "Huh? You solved my drain puzzle. It's a video game." <laughs> yes, but uh, I will that say that own thing. You have solved my Clark puzzle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I am channeling, uh, you know, my Griffin McElroy here. Um, but yeah, it, it, mention them by name. I hope we don't get sued. Ouch. It, it would be an honor to be sued by. The, well, <laughs> probably McElroy's. Probably their like agent or whatever, realistically. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it, I will say it is one of those scenes that it, it does feel a little pointless, right? And I do struggle to think of like a narrative justification for for it. Yeah. I guess thinking about it a little more, it, it reinforces something that I actually really like about this case. And that is that it feels like the individual actors in this case, right? All of the characters, they have agency outside of what Phoenix and Maya are doing, right? Mm. Like Penny did not patch up the drain because there is a gameplay reason for her to do it. She patched up the drain because 
Old Bag was embarrassed that it was revealed that there was a hole in her security, and she delegated that responsibility to the assistant. That's just something that that character would do, and we now see it represented within the game world. And I, I guess it just sort of, it makes it feel like things are happening, right? It makes it feel like characters are doing things, even if it's not directly related to our protagonists. And we will see a bit more of that as this case progresses. But yeah. basically, Maya just, she says that, hey, if the drain's covered, the kids won't be able to get in. And that that's her justification for it. And Phoenix is like, yeah, I guess some things are just made to be broken. And I guess uh, that is pretty uh, in character for Maya, looking at it from like the kid's perspective as a big uh, Steel Samurai fan. Yeah. It's it, to me, there's like this sort of almost anarchist energy about it, right? Or she's yeah. like, she doesn't care if they're trespassing. She <laughs> cares about them being happy. To her, that's more important. And I mean, she keeps saying it's for the kids. I could totally see Maya herself like crawling in through the drain. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants to leave that that sort of avenue open for herself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we open the drain, and again, it's it's kind of like at Studio Two, where you as the player, you're just kind of like, well. I really don't have any direction, so I guess yeah. I'll leave. So, so I, hold on. So, I mean, you actually get an option. You could, uh, I think your options are rip it open or leave it be. Of course, yeah. I ripped it open because why wouldn't you? But I have to ask, since you're usually better than I am at checking uh, the Ace Attorney wiki with, like, the dialogue yeah. options and all that, do you know what happens if you leave it? Uh, presumably, well, actually, I shouldn't presume what happens. <laughs> So if uh, it's actually really simple, if you leave it be, uh, Phoenix yeah. basically says, hey, I don't want the assistant to get in trouble with old bag, you know, knock it off. Let's mm -hmm. let's go. Right. Yeah. And then you just can advance the critical path. Yeah. So you, you <laughs> do just eventually have to choose. To yeah. Open it. Gotcha. Yeah. You can you can wander around global studios, but you, you won't be able to advance the critical path until you eventually go back there and rip it open. It'd be like the end of Mist, where you just wander around. <laughs> there is no critical path. Just wander yeah, the, around the uh, big global prank, studios the rest of your life. The big prank with Mist is that there is no critical path, and there is no way to beat the game. The whole game is just wandering around. Yeah. Um, After we go through all the Ace Attorney games, we should do a Mist podcast. Oh, we should do a we should do a Mist podcast. <laughs> we can we can call it hit hit or Mist. Wow, that was really good. Pretty good. <laughs> All right, listeners, All right. let us know if you want to listen to a Mist podcast. Yeah, we'll scrap this whole project. <laughs> was, if you're too, if you're too young to know what Mist is, it was a PC game, one of the first games to be made on CD-ROM. And if you don't know what a CD-ROM is, oh boy, <laughs> it's how it's how we played games before Steam. Before Steam, which I think Mist is on Steam now, so it's all good. Anyway, we were talking about this uh, employee area. Yeah. Anyway, we were talking about Shutakumi's mist. Um, <laughs> all right. So after we break the drain, you just kind of leave. You leave because there's nothing else to do. You go back to Global Studios. Hold on, there, were, there was some stuff to examine here, wasn't there? Uh, just the same stuff from uh, the previous day. Ah, uh, okay. You you can re-examine the drain after you open it, right? Yeah. And <laughs> Phoenix says the drain grate is off. And I know who did it. <laughs> that's, and, that's 
You know, we were saying that before he was before they decided to make him a lawyer, Phoenix Wright was originally going to be a detective. That's some top-notch detective work right there. <laughs> and Maya's I know very, who did it because it was me. Maya's very proud too. She's like, "Doesn't it make you feel great to do a good deed?" Like I like to imagine like you know Maya standing there proudly, like her hands on her hips, like looking at the destroyed grate, like, "Yeah, I did a good thing today." And Phoenix is just like. Uh, it's just like okay (laughs) yeah Nick's gonna like imagine like defending her for like you know being in court for like vandalism yeah vandalism destruction of property like whatever (laughs) so yeah it it is it's a pretty funny interaction which again also within context I think the following interaction is kind of funny Uh, you go back to the the main gate and uh, Penny is there right and I like to imagine Phoenix and Nick meet Penny at the employee at the employee area. Penny says, "Hey, I just I blocked up the grate." Phoenix and uh, Maya say, "Okay, great." Penny leaves. They break the gate. They immediately go back to Penny. <laughs> yeah, you Poor know, Penny. like. But anyway, uh, obviously she doesn't know that they destroyed her handiwork, and she's just like, "Oh, hey," and she's just at the main gate. Um, and we have the opportunity to talk to her. Um, I don't think any of this is strictly necessary, but, uh, she has some info about the studio. She mentions that there's police everywhere and, uh, the police won't let her clean up. Like not even the leftover plates, not even like, you know, the equipment or whatever, you know, that they're yeah, kind of like, preventing her from doing that. Um, so it'd be disturbing evidence. Yeah. yeah. Which I, I found that to be kind of an interesting remark because, um, the game doesn't actually indicate in any way that there is a police presence at Global Studio. There is one police officer in this game, and it is, is... Detective Gumshoe. Right. <laughs> exactly. So when Gumshoe isn't here, you know, Penny says, oh, this place is swarming with police. And it's like, is it? I haven't noticed. <laughs> you know, like, I feel yeah. like even just like a little throwaway, like narration line where Phoenix is just like, wow, there's a lot of you know, policemen scouring the place or what, like, you know, just something I feel like would have reinforced that, but okay. Well, I know, I know in the, in the later, like the great ace attorney games uh, that I just recently played, there are situations where there are like, you know, actual police officers like on scene investigating things that you can talk to and they're not, you know, purely just like background, you know, they're actual like human being (laughs) characters that you can like interact with, but eh, whatever, whether it was due to like limitations of the, you know, uh, Game Boy Advance that it originally came out on, or whether they just didn't have the budget. Uh, in any case, there are no visible police officers anywhere. Yeah. You just gotta take Penny's word for it. <laughs> yeah, we take Penny's word for it that the invisible police officers are doing their job, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can talk to her about the fanboy. Uh, she basically reiterates what we learned the previous day, that there was a particular fanboy that kept sneaking in. Old Bag has been having trouble catching him. And then... Uh, Finally, we have the opportunity to talk about the director and associates. And uh, Penny does remark that she did not see the director personally and that the studio head seemed eager to keep everybody quiet. Um, She says that it seems like they were trying to protect the producer and uh, that the producer is a pretty valued member of the studio as she is the one that brought the studio back after the brink of disaster. 
I wrote down exactly the same line and like circled yeah. it in my notes. They love. It probably sounds like a broken record, but I love the way all the Ace Attorney games do this. Um, introducing these small like breadcrumbs here. It's always. Yeah. Um, and again, if you're doing the Ace Attorney drinking game, uh, take a shot now because uh, they just referenced uh, that incident from five yes. years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I actually. I know I keep mentioning it for this case as well. I have in my notes, progression really isn't clear at this point, but okay. <laughs> so you're supposed to go back to the dressing room, basically. Yeah. Um, and so you do that, right? And we meet a very colorful character. Yeah. So I'm sorry. It's just what you said a minute ago that the progression uh, isn't clear. It's true. I think um, you kind of have a little bit of freedom to things in a different order so I, I might have done things differently than you but um yeah let's talk about the dressing room next all right so um we head to the dressing room and <clears throat> we meet a gentleman indeed we do who uh, the mm, the first okay <laughs> the on, first Abby. line out of his mouth is wtf who are you dudes? LMAO. 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 So, I need. So far, I need if our listeners are too young to remember Mist, they might also be too young uh, to recognize Leet Speak. Leet Speak. His dialogue, WTF, LMAO, it is the full acronyms. His, yeah. his, his O's are written as zeros, S's mm-hmm. are written as Z's. Yeah. He, he is typing with full leet speak, right? Um, I love this. I love this detail it, about uh, character Salmonella. He has a typing quirk, like from Homestuck. <laughs> exactly. Mish Shirley. Shirley, even in 2001, this yeah. character's pa- speech patterns were outdated. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, like, playing this game, like, 20 years later, you see how um, you know, some of the references, I mean, it was always very, like, tongue-in-cheek, just kind of silly and goofy, whatever, but, yeah, some of the references are kind of dated, but that's okay, because if you are nostalgic for the early 2000s, uh, you will absolutely love this. There, oh, I love it. Speak. There's, um... Oh, there's I drink it up. Thing. <laughs> Separate from the elite speak, there's um, the Steel Samurai's catchphrase uh, "For Great Justice." Um, yes, was was a very early internet meme. Uh, what was it? Um, all that your was base the, or all your base. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I remember because um, I was a huge nerd <laughs> back when I played this game for the first time, thinking that was just like the greatest thing ever. And whoever localized this game, like they must have had so much fun <laughs> doing there- stuff like that. There's a lot of evidence that the localization team for this game were uh, very online in 2001, and I love them for that. Well, they definitely know their audience because, yeah. um, you know, the people who play Phoenix Wright are the ones who are going to, you know, appreciate like the kind of tokusatsu inspired, you know, Steel Samurai, um, you know, people who are into like anime and Japanese video games and just <laughs> the super like nerdy references or whatever. Um, so... I definitely appreciate it the first time I played it. And looking back now, even though the references are outdated. No, you know what? Especially because the references are now yes, outdated. especially. even funnier. Yes. So I would describe... Uh, this character introduces himself as Sal 
Manella, which yeah, another fantastic uh, <sighs> name. The, the meeting those characters like one punch in the gut after another. I swear. But yeah. overall, I would describe him as a very charming character. Let me clarify. The character, well, hold the on. concept, <laughs> let me clarify. The concept of the character is charming. The man himself is absolutely not. <laughs> I, I want to make that very clear. Is the word I would use. Well, There's something very quaint about this. I don't know how else to describe him as a leet speaking neckbeard. Yeah, we should maybe describe this character's appearance uh, for our listeners. So he's um, <laughs> neckbeard. Uh, he fits he's, the archetype. He's this very nerdy, not like say like slightly overweight, uh, sweating profusely. All oh the time. yeah, he's constantly uh, sweating. Just this kind of creepy dude. Like he's you know always hitting on Maya, always talking like Lee speak. Uh, one detail about his appearance that I thought was kind of funny is he has this uh, baseball cap with this like built-in like samurai like top knot hairstyle like attached I, I, to the hat. I didn't know what that was. Is that what that is? That's what I think. But but the funny thing is he's wearing the hat backwards, so like the ponytail is in the front, <laughs> so he just looks like extra goofy. Oh my god. Yeah, you're right. He's, yeah, he's a lot. He's a lot, is what I would say. Yeah. So he's just this but, nerdy, sweaty, kind of creepy otaku stereotype. Yeah. And we learn that he, of course, is the director of the Steel Samurai. Um, he is the, you know, the famed director that we had heard about in the previous uh, trial. That was at, you know, that was at Studio 2 during the crime. Um, and we have a chance to talk, to talk to him, to interrogate him. Um, so first we get to ask him about the day of the crime. Um, and basically he, he sort of explains his role in the timeline. Um, you know, the timeline that we had already heard from the previous day, which broadly speaking was that in the morning there's a run through and then in the afternoon, um, Will Powers took a nap. Jack Hammer went to Studio One at around, I believe it was 2.30, right? And then um, Jack Hammer was killed at 2.30, supposedly in Studio One. And then um, the body was found in Studio One at 6 p.m. when they were going to begin shooting their scenes. So that's that's the timeline as we know it. Um, yeah, so there's no uh, contradiction so far. That just seems right. in line with everything we've heard so far. And then Salmonella, he explains that he was actually there at the run-through. Um, mm. But at noon, when, uh, you know, Will and Jack had lunch, he had a meeting in Studio 2. And yeah. he explains that the meeting in Studio 2 lasted from the afternoon all the way until 4 p.m. And that he didn't even have time to eat lunch. Right. So that immediately, you know, based on his story gives him an alibi for the murder as he was busy in his meeting when it occurred at 2.30. So um, after he explains his role in the timeline, we have the opportunity to ask him about the producer. Um, and he name drops the producer as yeah. D. Vasquez. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's the first time we learn uh, the name of this mystery producer. Her name 
is D. I'm I'm Mish. I'm not gonna make the obvious. I'm not gonna Mish. I'm not gonna make it. I'm not gonna make a D's nuts joke. I won't do it. We're better than this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're. All, I'm. I will not make a joke about how D Vasquez's name could be easily adapted into a D's nuts joke. Joke would be um. <laughs> Yeah, what his, would that? I, I don't know what that joke would be. I was going to say it would be about as timely as uh, the Leet speak and other references in this case. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, Sal mentions that uh, D is very scary. She's a very intense person, but again reiterates that she brought the studio back from destruction. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we have the opportunity to ask about the bigwigs that were supposedly there during the meeting. And he just says, you know, it was the network boss and some sponsors and some production guys. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like there were quite a few other people there. But um, as far as the scope of this case goes, you know, it, it to me, I feel like the story kind of telegraphs that those people aren't really important. Yeah. Uh, we're really just interested in the named characters at this point. Yeah, pretty much. They're just uh, random red shirts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And that's pretty much all we get out of uh, out of Sal. Well, hold on. There, there's two other things I want to add. Uh, one is uh, I should have brought this up in the beginning when you first talked to uh, Sal, but this definitely stuck out in my mind, not because it's relevant to the plot necessarily, but uh, as a cosplayer, uh, when he first uh, saw Maya in her purple uh, acolyte robes, do you remember this? He asked her if uh, she does a lot of cosplay. He says that her costume uh, rocks ours and uh, he starts drooling. He has this like honestly pretty creepy animation with his tongue like wagging back and forth. Maya's pretty uh, understandably creeped out. Yeah, like he literally... In his dialogue, they write asterisk drool asterisk, which yeah. in my head with how how sort of offbeat this guy is, I kind of imagine him literally saying that. Yeah. Like saying the word asterisk out loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> Winky face emoji. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like it, it is honestly kind of an uncomfortable uh, interaction, right? Yeah. That. I would kind of prefer if he didn't, but yeah, he's he does he he sort of uh, takes interest, I guess, in in yeah. Maya's appearance. I feel like that that scene made more of an impression on me. Uh, this recent playthrough, like the first time I played it, I'm like, all right, you got this guy Salmonella. Clearly, he's a creep. Whatever. Uh, after like actually getting into cosplay. <laughs> I replayed this thinking of like the men who occasionally try and slide into my DMs and it's like oh, oh yeah. sure. It it do be like that sometimes. <laughs> Poor Maya. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but... that was the first thing. The other thing, this is just a small detail that I think is totally totally uh not necessary, but um you know, you have the option to present evidence when you're talking to these characters. If you show uh sell a photo of um the steel samurai where he's dragging his foot behind him uh sal indicates that he knew about uh willpower's injury so he was definitely present uh during the morning run through and uh saw will get injured so i don't even know if that's necessary 
or not, but I just appreciate like the attention yeah. to detail, how they've established that some characters were present and like knew about this and others didn't. So they are very consistent uh, with the so story. It, that, that's actually a really good thing to point out, right? Because it's, it is such an incredibly small detail. It's a super small detail. But yeah, um, yeah if you present the photo to Sal, he says, this is Will Powers, right? And Phoenix is like, how do you know? And he says, well, look, he's obviously dragging his foot. And Phoenix yeah. thinks, oh, right. The director would know about the injury. He was there. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I really love the interaction because the way that Sal answers is he's just, you know, he just answers so offhand. He's just like, oh, yeah, this is Will, right? Like, it, to him, it's just a normal, it's a normal thing to say, right? Yeah. But to Phoenix, it's like it almost confirms that he was there at the run through. Like, you know, to us, the player it telegraphs this sort of consistency within the storytelling uh which i think is a really cool way of doing that in just such a small interaction yeah it's it's consistency without you know the excessive hand holding you see in some games right. it's not you know maya doesn't like prompt you like hey nick maybe we should show him that photo it's just like if you happen yeah. to do it you get this little detail which i appreciate and then also if you uh i think i'm right about this if uh you end up showing that photo to Penny. Um, she like doesn't know who it is, or she questions uh, why they're dragging their foot. Because I guess like she was not present at the time and like didn't know about his injury. So again, just that kind of consistency, I appreciate. Yeah, I, sh that might be her reaction during the first day of the investigation. Yeah, yeah no, that was a different time. You're right. Yeah, day day two, she would have already had known. But um, yes. Yeah, it, it is. I do love that. How, you know, just one little piece of knowledge, you know, from person to person can mean different things. And that these games generally have very remarkable attention to detail in who is available to what knowledge. Yeah. But yeah, so after we talked to Sal, um, we head back over to Studio Two. Again, I don't think anything prompts this. I think there's really just nowhere else to go. And uh, when you go to Studio 2, the area seems deserted until, I had mentioned this earlier, I forgot when it happened, uh, there's a crash that you hear in the yeah. trailer. So, yeah, um, noise. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's kind of a dramatic scene. You hear this crash and Phoenix and Maya are like, oh, whoa, what was that? And they check the door and they're like, ah, oh, the door's locked. There's probably a key at the guard station. Let's, you know, let's head over to the guard station. Yeah, and the music like, intensifies. You yeah. The, the, and it's kind of funny because then as soon as you leave Studio 2, yeah. the music just stops. <laughs> the you music know? stops. Like, and it, yeah. So th this, again, I, I think I know where you're going with very, this. It's very rare that I'll say anything negative about any Ace Attorney game. This particular part seemed a little <laughs> silly <laughs> where it's like. I agree. It, it was such a fake out, but it was like not a good kind of fake out. It was just like unsatisfying. You're like, you hear this crash. You're like, oh, man, something big's happening. There's going to be some big reveal. What's going on? And then, you know, you can't get into the trailer. You don't have the key. So you go back to the guard station. You're like, oh, maybe we can get the because uh, Penny's still filling in for old bag as the guard. And then they're like, oh, maybe we can get the key from her. And like, you know, the music, the intense music just kind of stops. It goes back to the normal investigation music. You talk to Penny, and she just says, hey, don't touch anything. Yeah. You can't take the key, and there's no, like, dialogue option. Like, this is one thing that seemed kind of like, it felt like 
not like real, like a, re- a realistic right. interaction. I-, I thought the way the scene would go is you'd go back to the guard station, get the key, and then like rush back to Studio Two and like, what was the crash? Let's see what's in the trailer. No, there's like yeah. a whole extended scene. You know, with yeah. and we'll go through it. There's a whole extended scene before we get back to the trailer. Like in my head, like a solid like half hour must pass yeah. between hearing the crash and actually getting into the trailer. Yeah, like it didn't make any sense because, like, you know, if you were actually there and you heard this crash, you know, I'd rush back to the guard station and be like, "Oh my god, Penny, there's an emergency! Like, we need the key!" Like, but you just don't even get the option to like. And then at that point, maybe she could like stonewall you or say like, "Oh, no exceptions, nobody gets in," and then you might be suspicious or whatever. But none of that happens. You just you don't even get the option. So it's like, yeah. well, all right, I guess that was. It was almost like a, a jump scare, like, you know, in horror movies when they do kind of the fake out thing, you like think the monster is going to appear and it's just like a cat knocking something over or whatever. It's like it's, a, it's like that level of just like, all right, I guess I guess they faked us out. We can't. It's a narrative dump, jump scare. Yeah. It feels like there's, you know, the big crash, the music starts, Phoenix and Maya rush out of Studio 2. And as soon as they leave Studio 2, they just move into a leisurely walk. And it's just like, OK, anyway business as usual but yeah Again, so maybe, maybe because this is still early enough in the series i feel like in later games they would have um i mean i still love this story but i think they might have been better about those kinds of details yeah of, you know, <laughs> knowing like exactly how to build suspense and all that but but yeah i i mean we'll we'll go through it so we you know we're on the back of this very intense crash and we go to the main gate at, at global studios and uh, actually, at this point, Penny is gone, and uh, Old Bag has returned. She explains that um, the police had her try on the Steel Samurai costume, and mm-hmm. it just did not fit her at all. And uh, they let her go. She She's no longer a suspect because she very clearly does not fit in the costume. So it, it's kind of funny. Um, it, you can ask her about the fanboy or the director. And if you ask her about the fanboy, she says... If I see him again, I'm taking him down. And then if you ask her about the director, she says, if I see him again, I'm taking him down. I loved that. It's Old really is great. funny. I feel like I didn't like Old Bag when we first met her. She seemed kind of like irritating. Like she was, you know, just there to like stonewall you or like, you know, well, I mean, that's her job as a security guard, right? To block you yeah. from, you know, accessing all the areas or whatever. And then, you know, she just kind of rambles on and talks about, ah, the youths these days with their hippie clothes. And like, I just thought at first I thought she was kind of irritating, but she grew on me pretty quickly. I, yeah, I, I like think she's things. fantastic. I really like her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can't we can't get the keys because I guess old bag is there. Like there's really not even like you said, there's not even a mention of getting the keys it doesn't even seem like it registers as a priority to phoenix and maya but whatever so i, I guess I some point. of this might depend on the order you visit these different locations in because because sure. um, after going to studio two when i went to the guard station first i talked to penny that might not have been the case for you if you had done things in a different order old bag might have been back but i think regardless of who's there you just don't even have the ability to tell them like, hey, maybe we should go check out trailer two. <laughs> There's something going on there. Yeah. It's just like, nope. Yeah, well, it's just not a priority. So at this point, instead, I went back to the employee area and uh, there was a child. Oh, yeah. We get to meet a new character. Our not boy, sure how uh, he got Cody. in there. <laughs> yeah, whoever. Uh, <laughs> really crack down whoever. 
<laughs> you know, broke the grate again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the duct tape. But yeah, the kid introduces himself as Cody Hackins. He is uh, very confrontational and seems very sensitive about being called a kid. So uh, we have the opportunity to ask him about the Steel, the steel Samurai. And um, through the interaction, you know, we see both Maya and Cody kind of bond over their shared love of Steel Samurai fandom, um, which is kind of cool. I think that's a nice scene for them. That was um, a nice scene, but, but hold on. Um, the, uh, I think you're right. They, they kind of bond over their shared love of the Steel Samurai uh, eventually. But the very first line between them I thought was funny where like Maya like tries to like bond with him. She goes, hey, kiddo, what's your name, sport? <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, he's just like, I'm not a kid. Don't talk to me like that. Yeah. And he's, he's like, is that any way to talk to an adult? And he, and he goes, I don't, I don't see no adult here, you hippie fashion chick. I, I do like how quick Maya is to change her approach with someone. Yeah. You know, she did that with Will when she first met him where he's where she's like, oh, yeah, he definitely killed someone. And then after he talks to her a bit, she's like, nah, he's all right. She's and in this so case, she's chaotic. like, yeah. And then in this case, she's like, she's like, ah, hey, hey, kiddo, how's it going? And then as yeah. soon as the kids mean to her, she's like, she's like, well, fuck you. Like, exactly. So, yeah, well, I, I love that about her. This, but but yet another uh, good pun. So we had um, Salmonella uh, and now we have um, Cody Hackins, which um, I don't know. There might be like different possibilities for his pun. It made me think of like computer hacking but like hack in like he hacked his way into the dressing uh, room i i did not clock his name as a pun at all <laughs> but i could yeah. see that uh especially you know he carries around a toy sword yeah and maybe there's sort of a hack and slash kind of yeah, like yeah, exactly angle there yeah no that's exactly what i mean i think there's like i kind of like it i think there's several different possibilities yeah the pun works on multiple levels yeah, his name definitely isn't as on the nose as Penny Nichols or Salmonella, but I think it works. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, after he talks about the Steel Samurai for a little bit, we have the opportunity to ask him basically what what happened, right? What yeah. he he saw that day, right? And um, he he seems distressed by this, right? He says that um, you know the Steel Samurai always wins always yeah he says i saw him i saw everything and then he runs off he goes no way i'm telling you losers anything yeah. he runs away <laughs> and uh as he's leaving you know he kind of leaves in a hurry and he bumps one of the the dining tables that was in the employee area and yeah. uh it knocks a bottle free and um maya picks it up and adds the bottle to the evidence and um i, I think it's kind of interesting this, at, at this point Phoenix and Maya pay zero attention to this bottle. But if you look yeah. at it in the court record, it is indicated as sleeping pills. Yeah. So And you have you have your client whose alibi is that he was taking a nap the whole afternoon in the dressing room. This seems very relevant. It does seem relevant. And um the game lets you just sort of sit on that. And I, yeah. I actually don't mind that. You know, it's fine. 
It's in the, it's in your court record now. Maybe it'll be relevant. Maybe it won't. Either way, that's... So, I just have to point out, this is another thing that, like, within the universe they've established uh, for the Ace Attorney games, this is something that happens all the time where you just, you know, find this piece of evidence that is clearly very important uh, to your client's case. But, you know, it's like they made a big show earlier when you were talking to Penny. She was saying that there's like this huge police presence and she's not allowed to touch anything because it would be disturbing evidence. But you've already had one day in court where this piece of evidence did not come up. Like, did nobody notice this? This seems hugely important. But so, after it's Ace Attorney. <laughs> so we, we've run into this, this sort of uh, uh, conflict, right, between real police work and real law enforcement and then the way that this game treats police work and treats law enforcement. And I, I would like I would like to present to you a, a quote that I read uh from Shu Takumi the other day. It was um yeah he was <laughs> it was on Shu Takumi, I ain't gotta explain shit. No, sorry. <laughs> I it might as well be, right? So he was being interviewed by uh Famitsu, right? Which he has a few interviews with them, right? And he said that when he first presented the game's concept to the higher-ups at his company, uh, he received a lot of negative comments. Stuff like, you know, this game seems hard and unforgiving. Are you sure players will take to this? And won't players need some legal knowledge to play? And Chu explains that the point of the game wasn't the law or even reality. Instead, I imagined a game where the point was to have fun solving puzzles and enjoy the excitement of calling witnesses out on their lies with evidence. I, I mean, I think he did a great job with that. I love that line from him. But the point of the game wasn't the law or even reality. That's so funny. That's really funny. And he talks about that both in the context of the way that these games treat the law more as a tool and a vehicle for puzzle solving. But he also kind of speaks similarly to how this relates to his approach to character writing, where he tries to write characters that are on the border of realistic and extraordinary. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of these and characters this is, are cartoonish, which is great. And he actually says that this is something that he made a point to elevate in the second game and onwards, uh, which I, I think we really do start to see that in the second game. Uh, but even now in the first game, we do, like you said, we have these characters that are that are cartoonish, right? They're extraordinary, but they still kind of, I would say, border on reality. Yeah. I, I really right love this. It's like reality adjacent. Right. And that's why I love this quote so much, because it it really does sort of, I think, shine through the whole game. I feel like the world that Ace Attorney creates is almost like this elevated caricature of reality. Yeah. And I'm being silly when I'm talking about like, wait, did nobody notice that bottle of sleep? Yeah. Was, like, was that on the table the whole time? But like within the context of the game, like you're talking about like the important, you know, it's not supposed to be like, oh, realistically, yeah, of course, the police would have found this during their investigation. It's not meant to be realistic. It's meant to be Ace Attorney. Right. Right. And... I think that is one of those cases where you can just say, you know what? The point of the game wasn't the law. Yeah, exactly. Or even so, reality. Or even reality. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. 
so yeah, I, I like that. I think I think it does influence a lot of the suspension of disbelief. But also, yeah. I do think I, I do enjoy trying to apply real world logic to the game because there is a lot that is consistent. Um, so yeah. Anyway, we pick up the bottle from the table, and um, like I said, that just sort of sits in our court record for yeah, however long it needs to sit there. And yeah. uh, after our interaction with Cody, um, again, we, we leave. There's nothing left for us in the employee area. And we go back to the main gate. And again, kind of with the idea of like stuff happens in this world, whether Phoenix or and Maya motivate it or not. When you go back to the, uh, the main gate, Old Bag is like, she is on it. She is chasing Cody. Like she, <laughs> yeah, she crazy. has fire in her eyes like she wants to get this kid so badly um but she's also very old and she's very tired yeah i wrote down that she was chasing him and then uh this happened off screen you don't see it but it said that uh old bag tripped and maya looked happy (laughs) i love i do love the imagery well okay the the imagery of an old woman falling down uh you know could be difficult but old bag seems like she's pretty well in shape i think she can she could bounce back from that no problem it's funny it's funny it's It's (laughs) yeah so at this point the guard station is totally free and clear for us to uh investigate so you examine the guard station and you grab those keys um so sure we had a whole interaction with old bag we had a whole scene with cody it's probably been a solid 20 minutes for phoenix and maya but we got those keys. Let's go back to Studio 2 and see what that crash was. Yeah. And uh, we go back to Studio 2. Um, the door, we unlock the door. Maya urges Phoenix to enter first. You know, she's she's obviously a little intimidated by whatever it is that's uh, that happened in there. And then yeah. we head into the Studio 2 trailer. So we we open the door to Studio 2. And we get our first meeting with yeah. Dee Vasquez, the producer. The producer herself. My notes just say, oh, wow, she's a baddie. <laughs> well, we, we should describe her appearance uh, for the benefit sure. of our listeners. So she's uh, dressed in like all dark colors. It's like uh, she is this dress. It's either like a solid it's either like all the her colors are like black or dark brown um yeah she has this uh kind of black dress that's like showing some cleavage but she's got like this mesh kind of under she's wearing very dark clothes it's like a tasteful amount i would say yeah no she's not the designated fan service character she's not she's not she's no april may um but she's got this hood kind of covering her head and uh the most noticeable thing for me right off the bat was uh, she's holding one of those um, fancy like cigarette holders, like that Cruella Deville thing. Like, yeah. there's only two characters I can think of who use these kind of cigarette holders. There's a uh, Cruella Deville and uh, the Penguin from Batman, and, and they're both uh, villains. So, oh man, you you get Cruella Deville, the Penguin, and D Vasquez all in the same room together. Yeah, they'll come up with their plot to kill the Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be that like the nineteen sixties movie where they like assemble all like the super criminals and they form this plan to <laughs> to kill Adam West. They'd be able to do it for sure. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, D Vasquez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we we meet her and um, 
yeah, she's she's got a pretty, I would say, very powerful energy about her. Yeah. So mm. uh, we meet her, and she's very she's very cold and standoffish. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. She simply asks for the script, and yeah. um, after a bit of clarification, we learn that she would mm. like the the script to the thirteenth episode of the Steel Samurai. And she does not seem interested in um, in talking until she has it. Yeah, she's very demanding. Uh, she won't answer any of your questions. She just insists that you go find the script and bring it back for her. Yeah. Maya remarks, Nick, are all the people in the entertainment business this weird? <laughs> and I, you know what? I think she's starting to get it. I know that Maya grew up on a mountain. I think she's starting to yeah. get it. That, yeah, mm-hmm. Hollywood's a little weird. Um, <laughs> Nick, are all the Ace Attorney characters this weird? <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah, right. Um, so the trailer itself, we can see, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty humble looking place. I do imagine mm-hmm. it would be pretty crowded in this trailer to have, you know, D, Sal, and a whole bunch of like, you know, studio bigwigs like crowding this place up. But, you know, you could see that it has some folding chairs in the corner and it has a little conference table. So I guess they make it work. As long as we're describing the trailer, we should talk about the posters on the wall. Yes. Yeah. So there's several posters on the wall. You want to talk about them? Well, I was hoping you wrote down some of the flavor text here because I might have missed it. But the, but if you scroll from like left to right across the screen, there's several uh, posters from these old timey uh, samurai movies like yeah. Samurai Boogie Woogie or whatever they were called. But I yeah. think a lot of them were starring Jack Hammer. I don't know. Did you write down any? They, some of them had funny titles. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, they all star Jack Hammer. Uh, there were three movie posters. The first was for the singing samurai. Yeah. The second was for Samurai Summer. Mm-hmm. And the third was for Dynamite Samurai. Um, yeah. Honestly, the second one is the funniest for me because I, I imagine like a dude in like a samurai mask, but wearing like board shorts and stuff. It's like, or surf ninjas or all those, you know, like 90s, like campy, like movies. Yeah, it, it's very much that energy to me, right? Like that, like, yeah, real like 80s or 90s era, like very campy, like, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like ninja or like samurai based movies. Um, it sounds like though more than comedy, it sounds like Jack's stories were, um, almost more like romance, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you have the singing samurai, which, you know, sounds like it's a a sort of aspirational, like, you know, story about an accomplished musician. Uh, summer samurai Mm -hmm. was about, you know, a summer romance and stuff like it. it I guess what I would say is it seems like Jack Hammer was a real, like, action hero but also a bit of a heartthrob yeah well he definitely was for a uh, old bag uh, yes yeah we we had that echo that sentiment echoed by old bag so yeah it, it seems like this studio put a lot of value onto jack hammer mm-hmm. they still keep his posters yeah. up in the trailer it seems like he has a history of working on some high profile movies with them um so yeah that's maybe the most striking thing in the trailer. There's also a whiteboard that has some big plans for a new movie set. Um, and Phoenix yeah. remarks that it seems very expensive. But otherwise, there's really um, 
not too much of note in here. Uh, though I do have, I think, a kind of important question for you, Mish. What's that? What was the crash? They never explained it, and I'm so mad. Uh-huh. What was yeah. the crash? What was the crash? I don't know. Like, I was hoping I, I, you would tell me. Yeah, like, there literally is no follow-up to that, right? You you could you could make a guess that she was looking for the script and, you know, maybe, like, turning the room upside down, trying to find it, right. and, like, you heard something. But, yeah, that whole thing was just such, like, a false alarm such like a letdown yeah. like we heard this crash it was trying to build all this suspense and then it's like you jump through all these hoops and then you finally get to meet the producer if i ever meet shu takumi i'm gonna be like hey shu what was the crash seriously what was what was the crash <laughs> yeah come on Fimitsu. you get all these <laughs> interviews with him ask about the crash yeah they're giving him all these like nobody asked the hard-hitting questions <laughs> <laughs> they ask all these lofty questions like you know, what was your design motivation for whatever? Where did this character come from? No. Tell us about the crash, shoe. Tell us about yeah. the crash. The people want to know. And by the people, I mean... <laughs> what is he hiding? What are you hiding, what is, shoe? What are you hiding? <laughs> yeah. Uh, as usual, I do have a headcanon about this. <laughs> um, I should have known. <laughs> what, what's your headcanon? This one's actually pretty simple. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. I suspect that uh, D had requested the episode 13 script from Sal. And mm-hmm. uh, she, when she saw that it was not in the trailer on her desk when she wanted it to be there, um, she threw something. You know, she, whatever, threw a chair yeah. or, you know, made a big ruckus because, you know, she was probably pissed off that, you know, her, her subordinate didn't do what he was told and i assume that was the crash it was just her having a little outburst i'll believe it but yeah there, there's no follow-up yeah yeah that was the that was the most bizarre thing they like, <laughs> tried to build the suspense and there was zero payoff that was like very like un ace attorney ish usually they're very good at like setting things up and like you find the contradiction and you get that payoff in the end uh but yeah this is <laughs> weirdly unsatisfying <laughs> I do wonder if maybe there was like a scene that had to get cut or something or I don't know. I just I don't know. But either way, we got to go find that uh, script, right? Oh, man. All right. Now, you know, it's a video game. We're going on a fetch quest. We are. And yeah, uh, D gives us a memo requesting the script. So we have we have a memo. And we have a character that might need to see that memo. Ooh, mm-hmm. we're cooking with gas now. This is a point-and-click adventure, baby. Well, hold on. Didn't did you say earlier that, like, the feedback that Shu Takumi got, people were saying this game was, like, too hard or too confusing? <laughs> because this air quote puzzle seems very straightforward. So, actually, um, I, I believe what he is referring to is specifically with the trial segments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, we can maybe talk about that when we get to today's trial, because uh, it is sure, I don't mean kind to jump of, ahead. <laughs> it is kind of interesting, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know if necessarily that statement applies to the investigations. Got it. Because uh, they're the investigations are pretty straightforward, but at times they're a little abstract, too. We'll we'll get one puzzle later in this case that's a little less straightforward. So maybe I shouldn't be blasting it quite so much. Mm-hmm. Um 
But yeah, either way, we have this memo. We got to take it to Sal. So we go to the dressing room where we last saw him and we show Mm -hmm. him uh, Vasquez's memo. And Sal says, he says, sweats. Uh Uh-oh, my ass is pwned Mm -hmm. if I don't find it. Sal says ass. He says it. He says ass. (laughs) I love it. You're losing it. I'm so happy. Sal says ass. In an Ace Attorney game. In an Ace Attorney game, a character says, my ass is pwned. It's awesome. I laughed way harder at pwned than I did at ass. <laughs> you know, pwned is funnier, but like, I feel like ass is more alarming. Did it, do you spell it with a uh, dollar signs for the S's? Because <laughs> if not, that's a missed opportunity. No, he should have. And you know, at the beginning of the case, the Steel Samurai says hell. So there's a lot of strong language in this case. Yeah, it's a very adult game. I know, exactly. It's really earning that. T rating, I believe. Lots of talk of sugar daddies and other adult (laughs) themes. Exactly. See, that's what I'm saying. This game was way more mature than I remember. (laughs) But um, so we show we show Sal the memo and uh, he gives us the script, right? Yeah. Oh, hold on. It's not that straightforward. (laughs) Yeah. He he just has it and gives it to us. (laughs) What else could the game possibly tell us to do? So he does not give you the script. What? Because... (laughs) Because he doesn't have it. So we have to continue searching. Um, He says, uh, well, Maya actually had a line about this. She said it might be quicker for us to look where he's been. Which, you know, for I read a little bit about this. I think um, one complaint some that I read online some fans had uh, with this case in particular was this fetch quest. um, Just being kind of uh, like long and... uh, taken away from like the main narrative like but i actually kind of liked what maya said where she like said oh it might be quicker for us to look where he's been because then you have to think a little bit and been like well we know sal like laid out the timeline earlier like which places you know has he been um that at least it, gives you a little bit of like interactivity <laughs> a little bit I'm, I'm trying to be charitable here you know it goes slightly beyond hey go give this memo to this character <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it does fit with the internal logic because th- this one actually wasn't super obvious to me, right? Mm. Uh, but it's in Studio One, right? And it's on the director's chair in Studio One. And, yes. you know, if you think about it, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? He went to Studio One with everybody else to start filming uh, the next episode, probably episode mm. 13. And yeah. uh, once they got there, they found Jack's dead body. So it's pretty likely that you know he had the script with him and was alarmed by finding a dead body there and just kind of left the script yeah so and also you can remember from checking studio one the previous day that that's where the director's chair is you know salmonelli is the director so it makes sense to look there i actually yeah for as much as i'm hating on this like fetch quest i actually did kind of like that because I, I don't know on the one hand it rewards you if you think about it and go directly to studio one on the other hand if you don't think about it at all and just there aren't that many locations you can go to, you'll probably end up at studio one eventually. So yeah, eh, this was like in the, in the scale of like ACE attorney puzzle solving, I would say the remembering the number for the security camera was like a low tier puzzle. This one was like a, 
mid-tier puzzle. Yeah. It's, this game excels in many areas. Puzzle solving is not one of them. I, it is something I think about. And I feel like these low-level puzzles might actually serve a more useful mechanism. And that would be yeah. reinforcing key points within the mind of a player. So, yeah. you know, you and I, we've already played through this case before. Mm -hmm. So we at least have the you know key details of the case pretty well at hand. But if you're a new player, like it is a lot to take in. And by having you go back to Studio One, you know, you remember you're like, oh, yeah, this is Studio One. This is what mm -hmm. Studio One looks like. I remember this is where the murder occurred. OK, cool. I'm here to yeah. pick up the script. I don't even care about the murder right now, but I'm at least here and I'm reminded yeah. of this place. Same with the camera, right? When you put in the number for the camera, you remember you're like, oh, yeah, that camera. I examined it. It was yeah. at the gate to Studio One. You know, it reinforces in your mind, like, this is a thing that was here at the time. Um, yeah, and that's a fair point. And then when you, you know, have the courtroom scenes, it is helpful to have that kind of fixed in your memory of, you know, the timeline. The characters were at this location at this time. There was the camera, which right. was, you know, at the kind of fork in the path where you could choose to go to Studio One or Studio Two. So, yeah, you know what? That's a fair point. I'll, I'll give it to you, Abby. I think... Uh, even though the puzzles are not challenging. Yeah, maybe they are kind of useful. Yeah, there, there's one other way I think Ace Attorney does this really well. And that is mm -hmm. with the pun names. This is, this is <laughs> only on. kind of related, but it's something I think about a lot. So um, mm -hmm. I have a difficult time remembering names in really any capacity, right? Yeah. Um, but it is problematic when I watch like movies and stuff that have a heavy mystery element where I'll just straight up forget key characters or I'll have to remember them like by their archetype rather than their name. But yeah. when you have a character named Sal Manella and he's the neckbeard, you know, lead speaker, you don't yeah, forget that. Gross dude named after a disease. Yeah, you're not going right. to forget that. You don't forget that. When you have a girl named Penny Nichols, that's yeah. that's funny. Like, it's funny. Like, you're not going to forget that. So yeah. it's one of those things where, like, I feel like the the pun names are, they're pretty funny. But I think that kind of like the puzzles, they serve mm. a broader mechanistic purpose. And that's keeping these details present in your mind. Yeah, making the characters memorable. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. So, I don't know. It, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, the fetch quest feels pretty contrived. Uh, mm. And maybe I maybe I am being especially charitable with all this, but I think it does serve a purpose. Maybe yeah. a, a purpose beyond simple padding. Yeah. So this is why I love talking about these games, because you always like change my mind about something. Yeah, I think you've convinced me that um, yeah. these puzzles, uh, even though, you know, they're not difficult, they are kind of helpful. That repetition of uh, yeah. having these things, you know more fixed in your mind i believe it yeah and it's fine because i'm sure this will be the last uh bullshit inconsequential puzzle that we get in this case probably so anyway <laughs> you think so we get this we get the script from the director's chair and we go back to studio two and uh we present the script to d and she just yeah. very silently reads over the script until <laughs> uh maya asserts herself right where Maya's kind of just like hey you know we're here why are why are you being so rude to us basically mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, D says that, yeah, you're, you're, uh, Will's lawyers, like who cares? Right. Mm -hmm. Again, Maya kind of asserts herself and tries to get some details out of D. Right. Tries to get her to talk a little bit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in line with D's characterization, she, um, she gives just a little bit of information. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have the opportunity to ask kind of about her alibi, right? Like sort of along that line of reasoning. And she says, none of the people in this trailer that afternoon went to studio one. It was impossible Mm -hmm. for us to leave. Yeah. And she says it's because the path was blocked, which we knew. And that, that is uh, consistent with the details that we know about this event. Yes. Right. So she mentions that the, uh, the path was blocked and we could ask her about that. And she explains that the studio's mascot, Mr. Monkey lost his head. And that when he lost his head, it blocked the path to Studio 2, and it wasn't clear until 4 p.m. And that everyone in the trailer has an alibi because of that, which, yeah, is consistent with what we learned in the first day. So I think I got this detail right. This The statue fell at 2.15 p.m., right? Yes. And then the murder took place at 2.30, and she says that the, they had a crane that finished moving the statue at 4. So the path was blocked from 2.15 to 4 p.m., so what D explains is that it's impossible for anyone who was at uh, Studio 2 to have committed the murder, which took place in Studio 1, because the path was blocked at the time. And this this thought was kind of funny. She also explains that you can verify this because uh, there's like a speaker in the monkey's yeah. head, like in the statue that announces the time similar to like the thinker clock from the the first, which appeared in the first two cases. So I guess. Uh, yeah, they, they really love. They really love talking head clocks yeah, in this world. It's uh <laughs> it's like their only way of like establishing time. Just talking so clocks everywhere. I I actually do like the way that this detail is revealed, right? Because mm-hmm. like you said, she mentions that the path was blocked and Phoenix is like, "Well, okay, the path was blocked, but what if it was blocked after 2:30? That then you don't have an alibi." And I really yeah. like D's response to this, right? Instead of trying to explain herself, right, instead of trying to present anything, right, she just says, Mm -hmm. okay, follow me, right? Like, Mm -hmm. again, it's very in line with her character. She doesn't put up a big fight. She doesn't put up a big show. She's just like, come here. We'll sort this out right now. Follow me. And she Mm -hmm. she leads them. I I imagine her just like very silently leading Phoenix and Maya along. And she brings them over to the um, the Mr. Monkey statue. Mm -hmm. And like you said. She announces that it announces its time in Ooks, right? Yeah. And yeah. she has this line that I really like where she she breaks it down. She says, one Ook per hour. Ook, Ook, mm-hmm. Ook, Ook. Always with the Ooking. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Which is a very funny line to imagine coming out of, out of that woman. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, she says that based on the internal clock, you could see that the, the clock was stopped at 2.15. So, yeah. Just like that, she says, that's right, this path was blocked from 2.15 till after 4. Therefore, yep. we're innocent. See? Goodbye. <laughs> I, I just, I love how, like, to the point she is. She's like, yeah. okay, leads them to the statue, is like, here it is. Okay, bye. She doesn't waste any time. She shows them. Yeah, she's got no time for you and mine. Yeah. She doesn't talk. She doesn't speculate. She shows them the evidence and then leaves. Yeah. I just really like that. It's it's I feel like she is a very sharp juxtaposition to everybody else in this case. 
you know, everybody else is, they're loud and running around and crawling through vents and, you know, doing yeah. all this stuff. And she's just, she is quiet. She is focused mm-hmm. and she is to the point. She's like the anti red white. Remember his downfall yeah. was because, um, he got like overconfident and he could have just, you know, stepped back and let the trial of Maya Faye uh, go on. But he was like, no, now I'm going to accuse you, Phoenix Wright, and I'm going to take the stand. And it's like all these villains, you know, they get caught monologuing. They like talk too much and that's what gets them in trouble. And Dee Vasquez is like the opposite. Like uh, she's very uh, terse and, you know, abrupt and to the point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. She's she's almost like a more like calculating villain than like Red White. Yeah. And I, I love that about her. I think it it really does characterize her in a very powerful way. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're you're totally right. Yeah. So that's our, our first or I guess really our second encounter with her, because she asked for the script previously. But um mm-hmm. this is our first, you know, real real conversation, real encounter with her. Yeah. So she explains that and Phoenix and Maya are fresh out of clues. So they decide to go back to the law offices and um, sort of regroup. Right. And as you know, Phoenix kind of ruminates on how bad of a situation they're in. Really? Mm -hmm. You know, their their big break was discovering that there were other people at the scene during the crime. Yeah, it is. It was a disappointment, right? Because we had that big reveal at the end of trial day one right where it's like oh my god there were other people on the scene like you know this changes everything and then d's story is that um because the statue was blocking the path uh it's like impossible for anyone in the studio to have committed the murder so it's like you know a, a glimmer of hope followed by like a letdown right so yeah at this point they're pretty desperate and mm. that's when mio shows up oh man yep. <laughs> yeah this is like this is how you know it's uh, an Ace Attorney game. It's like when things start looking desperate, uh, <laughs> Mia shows up. Yeah, Maya channels her again. Mia explains that Maya has a tough time uh, calling her unless she's really in trouble. <laughs> Which I, I love that, by the way, because it's a totally plausible like in-game explanation, right, of how yeah. um, you can't, you know, just ask Mia for help all willy-nilly. She like only shows up when things are looking really desperate. Yeah, and... and- to me, I think it's really a good thing for Phoenix and Maya's development as individuals, right? That they can't just rely on Mia all the time. And I feel like yeah. Maya kind of wouldn't want to, right? She wants to grow into her own person. She doesn't always want to be relying on her big sister to bail them out of trouble. Yeah. But when they really need it, they can, <clears throat> you know, they can call her down. So yeah. Mia explains that they still have one lead. And that one lead is the boy. Yep. Now, she's so right with that. But it does raise one question for me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that I guess Mia can watch them from the afterlife. Oh, you mean? Because she's aware of all the facts of the case by this point. Man, I didn't think about that. But yeah, it's... um. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is it's like... Uh, it's like an inc- not inconsistency because I think they are consistent about this, but it's um, it's like Mia can see what they're doing, but then when Maya summons her, Maya uh, isn't aware of like what happens while she's gone. So it's like Mia can observe them from beyond the grave, but while Maya is summoning Mia, then Maya doesn't know what's happening. Right. I 
think maybe it's possible that like maybe while Maya is channeling Mia, she's able to give Mia like a brief, you know, like may maybe in the spirit <laughs> world or whatever. Yeah. Maya is able to like just give Mia a quick like PowerPoint presentation or whatever. So that when Mia goes down to <laughs> oh the mortal God. coil, <laughs> she's like, OK, got it. I, I know all the details. Um, power, power, imagine like PowerPoint slides showing like old bag, like chasing Cody. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah. And Mia's like, OK, cool. Yep. I got the facts of the case. It would actually be really if that were the case, it would be really funny for Mia to come down to the mortal coil and like all her details are a little off because they were delivered <laughs> to her by Maya. Oh, man, I I get why they didn't do that. That I feel like would have been like too confusing or whatever, but it's almost like right. a missed opportunity. Like that would have been some good like ace attorney humor right there. That, like the that's a game of telephone between like Maya and Mia. I feel like that's a joke that would require far too much like groundwork to like set up. But yeah. um, I don't know. It might be funny for like a fanfic or something. But yeah. um, anyway, while we're in the studio or the uh, law offices, we have the ability to uh, re-examine some stuff in the office. And mm -hmm. um, one of the things we can look at is the beloved plant of the Wright & Co. Oh, here offices. it comes. <laughs> Can't wait to learn about Charlie. And uh, Mia remarks... <laughs> yeah, Mia remarks that the plant is looking sluggish. And mm -hmm. Phoenix explains that Maya had been watering it in her absence. Mm -hmm. And Mia says, sorry, Charlie... I love this because you and I were talking about this before we started yeah. recording. And um, I remember from like later Ace Attorney games, I guess this is a spoiler because I'm revealing that uh, Charlie survives. Yes. Char Charlie is not one of the murder victims. Uh, Charlie is not a victim. These games. Victim. But, but you see Charlie the plant in later games. And um, I remember because I had it in my head. I'm like, I know this plant's named Charlie. Like that's how they refer to it in like Apollo Justice and other games. But then it's like, I was replaying this, you know, in preparation for the podcast. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Did I just imagine that? Because they just call it like the plant. They never like name it. And I'm like, why would I make that up? Why would I imagine this plant is named Charlie? Like, where did I get that? And you pointed it out. It's only yep. if you are summoning Mia from beyond the grave. And then you take that opportunity to... uh investigate the plant then she as the previous owner of this plant reveals its name which we now know yeah is this is the first case in the series of this plant receiving a name and yeah yeah its name is charlie and mia just sort of she really does just drop that very very casually right <clears throat> she apologizes yeah. to charlie and yeah phoenix remarks he says you know in his head the plant's name is charlie which yeah a it's a little weird but i think it's incredibly endearing for mia to do that you know what i just thought of is i feel like it for a game where all of the characters names have such like silly puns like charlie is just such a yeah like banal like she didn't name it like <laughs> unremarkable Mr. name she didn't name it like mr leaves or whatever or like i don't yeah, know like yeah just charlie Planty mcplant face yeah yeah exactly um, so otherwise, in the law offices, we can examine the poster with Mia around. And um, oh, did she tell you the movie title? <laughs> yes. So Phoenix, like he's looking at the poster and he's like, oh, yeah, Mia, what's the name of this movie? 
And um, <laughs> Mia says that movie. Oh, I'd sure love to see that one again. It's a uh, what was it again? Sorry, it's right on the tip of my tongue. And Mia herself doesn't remember. Oh my god, Mia, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, Mia can't remember the name. It's her the first movie that made her cry, and she can't remember the name. I think that's so funny. I, again, oh, that's great. it must it must be just like a really like artsy like indie like you know it must yeah. just be like a really like I don't know just out there film. Um, I'm really glad you caught those details because I feel like. Yeah. You know, it's flavor text in the sense that, yeah, it's not the critical path, whatever. But like, it actually is really nice to, you know, hear these things like directly from Mia. And I'm usually good about um, investigating everything possible. But I think um, I probably looked at all these items in the office, uh, you know, the first time we were there when they were first available when you were with Maya. But I didn't go back and look uh, when she was channeling Mia. So that was uh, a missed opportunity by me. So I'm glad that, uh, yeah. that you caught this. Yeah, this game really does not waste an opportunity to add a little bit of characterization into even the uh the smallest details and i love that yeah yeah i i think it's one of the things that sort of these little details like mia naming the plant charlie or you know her not being able to remember the name of her own movie like Mm -hmm. i don't know i think these little details kind of do elevate the series just like a bit above you know what it would have otherwise been well you know what else is funny is you know all the characterization we get about me is that she's you know this very smart very dedicated very hard-working attorney you know she has all these fancy legal books that she's read you know multiple times but then she's also kind of forgetful (laughs) In a couple yes. ways, like she couldn't, she couldn't remember Larry Butts's name. She called him Harry Butts. Yeah, no, I love that. That every now and then you do get these glimmers from Mia that she is like, yeah, just ever so slightly bluffing in the same way that Phoenix does. You know, oh, that yeah. she she acts and behaves with absolute confidence, but even she mm-hmm. occasionally forgets details, or even she, yeah. you know, slips up a little <clears throat> bit, and I, I she's just so like she is such a professional and she is so confident that those moments i think are just so endearing i like the way you said that too that she's like bluffing a little bit i feel yeah. like that's where phoenix learned it because they do this um in late i don't know if it's later in this game or in later games in the series but she always talks about how like when things look the worst you know you have to let you can't let it show on your face you have to like yeah force yourself to like smile and like um, if you believe in your client, you know, I don't know if she uses the word bluff, but that's basically what she's saying. It's just like, eventually the truth will come out. You'll bluff your way to the truth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, mm-hmm. we actually do get some of those teachings of Mia a little later in this case. So we'll, we'll get to it. Um, speaking of which at this point in my notes, I did write down this investigation segment feels so long oh my god um yeah so at about this point i was starting to like i was like oh my gosh this is starting to drag a little bit so i i think maybe we can go through the remaining bits a little quicker because i don't think that much of it is too interesting or consequential um basically like mia said the last lead is the boy, right? Yeah. And at this point, Mia is actually our partner for the rest of this this uh, the day of this case, which is yeah. really cool. So we go back to the main gate. We meet up with Old Bag, and she is com- 
completely winded. It looks like she had been chasing Cody pretty much this entire time, right? Yeah. Uh, we have a few opportunities to talk to her. We can ask her about the fanboy, and it seems like, yeah, she's still trying to take down Cody. Um, mm-hmm. We can ask her about the director, and um, it it almost seems like she doesn't hear the question. She says, mm-hmm. huh? Huh? My heart, it doesn't feel so good. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Is Old Bag going to fucking die? <laughs> Like, I actually, like, I felt scared for her in that moment. <laughs> like, Just she's got to drink a Gatorade or something. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Anyway, she does mention that she has a uh, a hostage, right? A hostage mm-hmm. for Cody, right? Something, yeah. something she can hold over him. Yeah, Cody got away, but she was able to take a hostage. Yeah. So uh, we can ask her about that. And she says that it's something he wants and it's something that could be useful as evidence. But uh, she refuses to give it up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Mia proposes a a, a trade. Right. That old yeah. bag might be willing to trade. Um, mm-hmm. And then also old bag does mention wanting to go to Studio One. So I actually thought that this was a pretty solid puzzle. You know, you put the pieces together. You have the card key to Studio One yeah. and she wants to go see the final place that Jack Hammer had fallen. Um, so you present to her the card key to Studio One. Yeah, this game, as far as like puzzles helping go, goes, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some of them, it's, it's for sure a mixed bag. But some some of them do actually like reward you if you had paid attention to these details. Um, I would so yeah, say, yeah. as a whole, the puzzle solving is more mixed in the investigation se- segments. I might yes. even say they are more misses than hits if I'm feeling mean about it. But yeah. I would say in the trial segments, which are much more tightly designed and tightly paced, uh, the puzzles are way better. I, they're like yeah, definitely agree. All, all killer in the trials. But yeah, so we give her the card key and then she gives us a Steel Samurai trading card she had taken yeah. from Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, OK, great. We have we have a trading card that Cody wants. Cody has information that we want. We're going to go over to the dressing room and get his testimony. She has given us a plot coupon. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a it's a plot coupon for redeem for one plot. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a resource we can exchange for for one dramatic twist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Phoenix and Mia go to confront Cody in the dressing room, and he's yeah. still pretty cold towards Phoenix, but he seems willing to cooperate with Mia. I loved this, by the way, because um, I feel like they they could have gone. Well, I guess if if it was a different character, I guess if Cody was a little bit older, they could have gone for the whole like you know fan servicey route, which I think they do <laughs> in uh, in the third. Oh game. yeah, but I I, I, I kind of liked this where. Um, you know, instead of having like a crush on Mia, he like cooperated with her. I got like big mommy vibes from That's her. That's exactly. Like, yeah. He, he calls her like the nice lady. And I just yep. thought it was kind of cool that it like um, it, he like wanted to cooperate with her. But um, I don't know. They avoided going like the, the lewd route and instead yeah. went the more wholesome <laughs> route. I don't know. I just appreciated that. That's the exact energy that I got from it as well. I sort of get this impression that um, Mia is a very, like, she could be a very gentle and graceful person when she needs to be, right? 
especially mm-hmm. with like a child. And I think she yeah. just has this sort of open attitude about her that doesn't scare Cody, right? Like everybody yeah. else in this case does. Everybody else is very confrontational and loud towards him. So I think he, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I think he takes to her in this very like motherly way, which I think is yes. honestly very sweet. I think it's kind of a sweet characterization between the two of them. Yeah, agree. And it it is kind of <laughs> funny because Cody is still like a little bit of a shit about it, right? Where um, yeah. Like, Cody doesn't mind when Mia calls him a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, Phoenix will. Phoenix says, like, you know, he's like, hey, watch that attitude. Like, he kind of he kind of shouts at Cody. And Mia's yeah. like, Phoenix, you really shouldn't yell like that. He's only a kid. And Cody's mm-hmm. like, yeah, don't yell like that. I'm only a kid. Like, he's oh, still he's so- being just a a little bit of a shit about it while still cooperating with Mia. I think it's really funny. He's so irritating, but yeah, it's very well done. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, we can ask him about what happened, right? He alluded Mm -hmm. to it before about the Steel Samurai getting into some sort of fight, uh, but he's still not willing to talk. So Mm -hmm. uh, we present to him his RR plot coupon, the Steel Samurai card that we got from Old Bag. And mm-hmm. Cody explains that he actually has doubles of that card. It's a ultra yeah. rare card, right? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really care about it because he already has one. He's interested yeah. in a ultra rare premium card. It's abbreviate URP. Yeah. And I literally wrote in my notes at this point, come on. Yeah, this this is where the fetch quest gets a little excessive. Y- yeah, and... uh. I remember my my partner played through the first three cases of this game, mm-hmm. right? She yeah. she played through Turnabout Samurai. And this part still sticks out in her head. Like, she'll mm-hmm. mention it sometimes when we talk about the game. The next step felt very, uh, like, out, out of left field to her, right? The next step yeah. that you had to do in this case, it, it mm-hmm. really isn't signaled or telegraphed in any way. But you have to take yeah. the ultra rare card to Penny, who is at the Studio 2 trailer. <clears throat> yeah. There's really no indication that Penny would be super interested in a ultra rare card. I believe it is vaguely mentioned once that she's into the Steel Samurai. And if you pay attention, you could get that general sense that she's a Steel Samurai fan. You know, she she defends Will Powers. She works at the studio. It, it's not too much of a stretch to expect yeah. that she would be into trading cards but like it it still does feel like you have to make that logical leap yourself you know it's a tough balance right because a lot of these things like you know there's so many puzzles or whatever throughout the ace attorney games whether it's you know during the investigation phases or whether it's like a courtroom thing trying to find the contradiction it's i don't want to be too harsh because i feel like it is a tough balance of like you don't want to um, do too much hand-holding or make it too obvious, um, but you do have to give some kind of hint so that you're not randomly guessing. And th- this example of knowing that you have to bring this card to Penny seems more yeah. inside of random guessing <laughs> than if you happen it, to find the right character, I guess. It is, and I think it's also compounded by the fact that Penny is in studio in the Studio 2 trailer for, like, no reason. Yeah. That's you know, before she, Why we last she saw her at the guard stage station. Um, yeah, I, like that. I guess you know, 
she's just there because there was no other location to put her in. Actually, I think it's probably <laughs> that's the where reason. the plot needed her to be. At this yeah, because actually, time. if you think about it, uh, old bag is at the main gate, so she can't be there. Cody is in the yeah. dressing room, so she can't be there. The employee area is too. It's too close to Cody for that to be a good puzzle, so she can't be there. She can't be at yeah. Studio One because we don't have access to it. So yeah, mm-hmm. she she's at the Studio Two trailer. The plot needed she's her at to the be Gatewater there. Hotel. Right? Yeah, she's at the Gatewater Hotel, and it, like it's fine. She's the assistant. Like yeah, she's probably cleaning up or taking notes or whatever. You know, she could have been doing anything there. But yeah, so you present the ultra rare Steel Samurai card to her, and she gets very excited. Right. She is very clearly a heavy collector for Steel Samurai mm-hmm. trading cards. And it just so happens that ultra rare card was the last card she needed to complete her set. She said she will trade anything for it, even an ultra rare premium card. Got him. So she gives you your ult- you make the trade. She gives you the ultra rare premium card. You're good to go. <laughs> You've traded your plot coupon for a better plot coupon, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we go back to Cody and we present the URP card to him and he agrees to provide his information in exchange for the card. Mm-hmm. So we get a few few things from him, right? We get to talk to him about the Seal Samurai. And um, so I have in my notes, this is where uh, you as the player um, ask Cody what is his... Or no, he asked you, sorry, what's your favorite thing about the Steel Samurai? And you get to respond. Yeah, basically, Cody says that, you know, you're just judging the Steel Samurai by his looks. You have to look at his actions, at his life. It's very clear that Cody admires the Steel Samurai, not just on an aesthetic or character level, but on like a principle based level. You know, on a fundamental level, he he admires what the Steel Samurai represents. Which, of course, is for great justice. <laughs> yeah, he he asks Phoenix what his favorite thing about the Seal Samurai is. And the options are his kind nature, his fighting skills, and willpower's acting. And yeah. I, I think it's kind of funny that what he wants to hear is that the favorite thing is his fighting skills. Yeah. And the choice will just keep cycling until you pick his fighting skills. Mm. Um because, like, I don't know, I feel like in this case, something like his kind nature would feel like the right choice. It does seem like a a little bit of a disconnect between what he just said, right? Like, looking at... Well, it, it is and it isn't, right? Because what Cody admires is his fighting skills, but the way that the Steel Samurai directs his fighting skills. Specifically that he directs his fighting skills towards evildoers, towards... You know, the evil magistrate and the villains. That's what Cody loves to see. He loves to see the steel samurai bringing justice, you know? You know, when you're in the courtroom, if you, they have a little, some stakes involved, because if you present like the wrong piece of evidence and you f- don't find the right contradiction, then, you know, you get a penalty from the judge. But when you're during the investigation phase, like they don't have a similar thing, like there is no penalty system you can't get yeah. like a game over or anything but then you know they it needs to be the case like you know the critical path like you need to be able to get all of the information and evidence and everything you need so yeah you do just kind of <laughs> cycle through all these things and i know in um starting with the next game which i hope we get to uh discuss 
they do introduce a new mechanic and they have stuff they introduce in future games where they try and add like a little bit of suspense uh you know to these uh investigation scenes but yeah i guess they haven't really established that yet so um you know you get these three options and choose until you pick the right one which is yep. uh steel samurai's fighting skills yep and again it's one of those things where like i don't even necessarily dislike the quote-unquote wrong answers because they still give you yeah. more information about cody and his values and yeah we'll we'll get into some of those mechanics that they introduce in the next game for investigations and whether or not they necessarily <laughs> add to the series or not um I'm looking forward but, to it yeah but at least for now you could just say whatever you want without repercussion it's nice yeah um so yeah we learned that basically that's what cody values the most is the seal samurai's uh spectacular fighting skills and how he always brings the villain to justice um mm -hmm. he explains that he keeps pictures of the seal samurai at every live performance and yeah. that he always takes a picture when the steel samurai lands the final blow mm -hmm. um and he even kept all of those pictures every picture of the steel samurai landing the final blow at a live performance uh he kept keeps it in an album and uh he gives yeah. that album to mia yeah so we know from earlier that you know he's always got the digital camera around his neck um and then he has a scrapbook of photos of the Steel Samurai delivering the finishing blow, and he hands you this uh, scrapbook called The Path to Glory. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I just like that name. <laughs> I do, too. And, um, yeah, he, he kind of just gives it to, uh, to Mia because, I don't know, he thinks it's cool and he wants her to have it. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, he explains, you know, he has all of these photos on his computer at home, so it's really not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. So we just have that now. And then we get to ask him uh, what it was that he saw, right? Yeah. And what Cody has to say, he doesn't give too many details. Well, hold on. Just one thing I want to mention before that is um, when you ask him what happened, uh, Mia, you know, he won't really cooperate with you, uh, Phoenix, right? He needs uh, Mia to kind of encourage him. Because, um, so what she says is that uh, Phoenix... Uh, needs to know because he's fighting for great justice which of course is the steel samurai's catchphrase yeah and upon hearing that then cody decides uh to cooperate but sorry uh please go on yeah yeah um but what he has to say is uh very damning to will's yeah. case mm -hmm. cody explains that he saw the steel samurai kill the bad guy with his spear yeah so that doesn't look good for us <laughs> and yeah he explains that you know he got to global studios at two o'clock and that he was wandering around for about half an hour and that's when he saw the steel samurai get into a fight and and kill the bad guy one shot yeah. one kill you know mm -hmm. yeah um and yeah Phoenix and uh, Mia are like they're trying to be sensitive, but uh, they both have this realization that this is really bad. You know, yeah, the director and the producer have an alibi. We know it's not mm -hmm. old bag. We know it's yeah. not Cody. He can't wield a spear. Um, mm -hmm. Penny is right out at this point. This detail, the only option left is Will Powers. That's the only person <clears throat> who could have done it. 
Yeah, and this is another rare instance where um, you have these two uh, lawyers, uh, Phoenix Wright and uh, Mia, who actually like <laughs> don't just bluff their way <laughs> to the truth. They actually like have some kind of legal strategy where they're like, uh, maybe we shouldn't call this kid to the stand. This seems like it would be yeah. very bad for our client. Yeah, and that's that's the discussion they have is they're like, well, okay, yeah, we we just won't tell anybody about this, basically. But unfortunately, unfortunately for our heroes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Gumshoe was there. He was here the whole time, I guess, and he overheard the entire conversation. Yeah, he very conveniently shows up. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he wasn't there for the rest of the case, but he was there for this, so okay. Um, but he apprehends Cody as a key witness, and um, he kind of whisks him away. And that's where the investigation ends. Um, which is very which is very frustrating that, you know, you just decided, like, all right, we absolutely can't have this kid take the stand, and then Gumshoe shows up. Oh, this is a material witness. Definitely taking the stand. <laughs> so I was like... I, it, my first reaction to this is like, ah, oh, come on, Gumshoe, what happened, man? You used to be cool. But then... Um, Gumshoe, uh, this is the first of two times that Gumshoe will uh, very conveniently show up at exactly the right time. And, and the second time, he actually helps you out. So yeah. it's kind of a wash. I think Gumshoe's all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mind it. I think it is a suitably dramatic cliffhanger for the second investigation. Yeah. Um, it, it does, you know, right at the midpoint of the case, it does leave our characters in a very, very low point. Um, which I think is important. I I do like the pacing of the overall case in that we get a small win, right? In part two, we get a small win where Phoenix has this strategy where he just has to give enough reasonable doubt to make it to one more day. And he does that. He gets that win. He gets his second day. And, you know, he's kind of, as he usually is flying by the seat of his pants here. It, he figures there's got to be something left in this day that he's overlooked. And he's right. There was something he overlooked. But once he discovers it, it's even worse. And I, I don't know. I think there's a very, very interesting way that it's paced with those highs and lows. You know, you have a yeah. victory and a loss and then a victory and then a loss. And I feel like at least at this point in the case, each loss takes you a little bit lower than you were before. <laughs> I like how you describe that, like the highs and lows, because, yeah, you're yeah. totally right. It's like yeah, you're, there are these... you're the underdog for most of the time, and then you finally catch a break when it's like, oh, man, there were at least two other people at the studio. But then, you know, you learn, like, well, they couldn't have done it since the path was blocked. They didn't have access to where the murder took place. And then it's like, ah, shoot. And then it gets, like, even worse, where then you have this kid who's like, um... You know, I was there. I witnessed the murder. It was definitely uh, the Steel Samurai. I'm just like, oh, man. Yeah. It's like, cool. We we learned the thing we wanted to learn. And it's mm-hmm. worse. Yeah. So, yeah. But <clears throat> And then Mia asks you one last question. She says, uh, do you believe uh, that Will Powers is innocent? Yes, and- that's right. And you you do actually have the option to say... You know, I believe or I don't know. And I said, I believe. Yeah. Does this choice matter? 
No, of course it doesn't. But if you say, I don't know. <laughs> um, what was I thinking? Yeah. If you say, I don't know, uh, Mia seems mm. upset, right? She says, Phoenix, if you don't believe in him, who will? End day one. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we do we do get this sense of sort of the way that Mia approaches her role as a defense attorney, right? And there's this mm. sort of unfettered belief that she has for her clients, right? Yeah. Where she's always going to fight for them and always going to advocate for them, even mm. if things seem really bad. And I think that's a really admirable thing about me. But yeah, so that's the end of the second investigation, which leads right into the second trial. We actually begin in uh, defendant lobby number one, which this is this is such a small thing. This is such a stupid detail. But um, in the previous part of the case, we were in defendant lobby number three. I don't know what to make of that. The fact that the number of the lobby changed. Yeah, I, I guess defendant lobby three was taken, so we were in the first one. Or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's nothing to read into this. I just thought it was interesting. I noticed that the numbers change, but yeah, I don't know if there's any yeah. rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Wright is pretty visibly unhappy. He's like mm-hmm. not doing super well. Yeah. Um, but Mia is still with us, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Because yeah. it is a full day later, <clears throat> and Mia is still here. <clears throat> yeah, that was kind of funny. So it's like Maya just like can't summon her all willy nilly. She like needs to wait until things are really desperate. But then I guess like once Mia is here, she can just stay <laughs> overnight. Yeah. I don't know. I that's kind of the sense I get. Right, that it's difficult to establish that connection, but maintaining it is a little bit easier. Yeah. But yeah, Um, Mia establishes the stakes at this point. Uh, She has a pretty funny line. She says, your client is now practically a dead man walking. Perhaps that's why I feel particularly close to him. That was great. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, And yeah, she establishes that the two of them are pretty much going into this case defenseless. If Powers is innocent, then they should be able to find something. If he yeah. is truly in- innocent, as they believe he is, something has to be there that they could find. And if yeah. they can't find that something, he will be guilty. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty heady stakes to establish at this point yeah. in the case, you know, mm-hmm. and I like that, even though this is the middle of the case. And, you know, at least you and I are aware of that. I mm-hmm. feel like it is still pretty dramatic. There is still quite a bit of tension here. All right, so after Mia establishes the stakes, we head into courtroom number four, which, as a point of order, is the same courtroom we used the previous day. So same courtroom, but different lobby. Interesting. Exactly. Same courtroom, different lobby. No idea what to make of that. So those are the small details that uh, keep our listeners coming back. Exactly. Exactly. We can't give you any meaningful reason for it, but we will point it out. Um... (laughs) So the prosecutor gives their opening statement. Um, It's pretty straightforward. The prosecution asserts that other people were present at the scene and the prosecution will prove that those other people are unrelated and ergo they will fall back on the original claims from the previous day's trial and Will will be the only one who is guilty. 
So pretty straightforward opening statement from uh, Edgeworth there. Yeah. He wastes no time bringing Sal Manella to the stand and we get Sal. I just, and- <laughs> I just think it's the, the Ace Attorney games. They get like so wacky that it's almost like unusual to see this like straightforward like. Yeah, there were other people present, but I'm going to prove that they were not relevant to the murder. It's like, yeah, that's what a prosecutor would do. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, Edgeworth is usually pretty, pretty straightforward with his opening statement. And then usually it's external factors that sort of uh, uh, rattle him a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which. (laughs) What rattles him is trying to. Trying to get them get the uh, witness to say their name. <laughs> he has yeah. real trouble with that. Yeah, he once again has a tough time getting Sal to say his name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> Sal calls him a noob for not knowing yeah. who he is. And then Edgeworth just gives him like a blank, steely stare, mm-hmm. and then Sal yeah. gives him his name. <laughs> um yeah so yeah sal introduces himself and uh he admits that he was in fact at global studios on the day of the murder and Mm -hmm. um ahead of the testimony mia remarks that if powers is innocent then you know you know what that means it means somebody in the trailer on that day did it so she sort of establishes the way that we're supposed to be thinking right now somebody in that trailer has to be the person who did it that's the approach we should be taking taking so we start the first cross-examination. It's a fairly lengthy cross-examination, seven statements in total, where um, Sal basically gives his timeline of where he was at during the um, the day of the murder. He says, you know, like we heard before, he was doing the run-through all morning, and then he was in a meeting all afternoon. He was in the meeting so long that he skipped lunch. So um, basically Mia suggests pressing him for more information because uh, there's nothing that immediately jumps out as a contradiction. So um, by pressing him, we do get a few additional statements. We learn that Sal did, in fact, uh, have lunch after all. Uh, that there was a break in the meeting. That it wasn't yeah. just a continuous four-hour meeting from noon till four. And this contradicts a previous statement that Sal had given in his testimony where he says, uh, we were in the meeting until around four. During the yeah. meeting, well, I'm pretty sure nobody left their chairs. Mm. So um, Phoenix identifies this as significant. He asks Sal to testify more about that break, right? Yeah. And when Phoenix takes that approach, right, when he asks Sal to elaborate on the break, uh, mm-hmm. Miles simply says, he he he. He does like a little laugh, which is a little weird, but okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Sal. I might not have that. noticed that, but that that makes sense because I know where this is going. Right. Yeah. So so Sal accepts that and he he elaborates on his break. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we go into our second cross examination with Sal and uh, it's a shorter one. It's only four statements long. And yeah. um Yeah, Sal remarks that, okay, sure, we took a break, but the break was only 15 minutes, right? 13 in base 12. And I'm just going to take his word for that, right? That 15 is 13 in base 12. I think that's how base 12 works. Um, But yeah, he asserts that that's not enough time for someone to, I don't know, commit a murder at Studio One. Mm -hmm. So 
he he says that that's really only enough time to eat a T-bone steak. So yeah, um, there is a bit of funny dialogue about how you know fifteen minutes really isn't that much time to eat an entire T-bone steak either, right? <laughs> yeah. That uh, well, Sal, Sal really managed it. Yeah, Sal must have really been going for it to finish the steak yeah. in that in that short a time. But I I think that's reasonably possible. I'm a pretty quick eater. I think I could do a T-bone steak in 15 minutes. But um, we were able to press him for a few more additional details, right? Um, we yeah. learn precisely when the break was, that it was from 2.30 to 2.45. Again, we will remember that the murder occurred at 2.30. Mm-hmm. And then we also learn that uh, D also ate steak during those 15 minutes so yeah interestingly uh the way you make progress in this cross-examination is you have to specifically press the first statement and then the (laughs) third statement um because you first learn when the break was and then you next learn that d was present for the break Mm -hmm. and then after you get those pieces of information uh edgeworth objects And he says, the people in the trailer had nothing to do with this murder. It was impossible for any of them to go to Studio One. So that I think that's kind of why Edgeworth had that little moment after the first cross-examination. Because he knew the details of the break didn't matter. Right? Yeah. Regardless of whether or not they, you know, were in the meeting or weren't in the meeting or were on break or whatever, the path was blocked. They couldn't leave Studio 2 regardless, right? Yeah. Yeah, Edgeworth says that the path was blocked by Mrs. Monkey, so he misgendered the statue. But Uh, Phoenix doesn't think it's worthwhile correcting him. It's honestly so funny because, Mm -hmm. like, when Edgeworth makes that assertion, it's, like, really dramatic and he gets the swooshy background and everything. And he says it so confidently so confidently and dramatically he says the path was blocked by miss monkey yeah and it's just again it's one of those details kind of like with mia that i really like Mm. that edgeworth is always so precise and well put together that Mm. for for him to get this detail incorrect is super funny to me i want to see a trial of like uh Mia versus Edgeworth is like the defense and prosecution could just be like two super smart, capable lawyers who both just like forget people's names. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they would. Yeah. The two of them would put on a hell of a of a trial for sure. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So Edgeworth explains that the path was blocked by Miss Monkey. And basically, at that point, the judge sort of takes in this information that we got from these two cross examinations. And he explains that the opinion of the court was that the Studio Two folks were uninvolved and that everybody else, you know, the people who weren't at Studio Two, um, Penny, Old Bag, the child, they couldn't fit in the Steel Samurai costume. Therefore, the leading suspect is still Will Powers. And that the only thing that's really preventing him from handing down a verdict right now is decisive evidence. Yeah. And Edgeworth says that they just so happen to have decisive evidence. They have a yeah. decisive witness that had uh, that saw the moment of the death. Mm-hmm. 
So the judge calls a 10 minute recess for them to prepare the witness. And uh, we have a brief scene where we uh, head back into the, the uh, defendant lobby. So um, was, it, was this the same lobby as before? We were, we're in the it lobby is. It's one defendant lobby number one. All right. I'm going yeah. back to my notes trying to check. Yep. The story checks out. So it's it is consistent. They are consistently going back to the same lobby. I don't think it was a typo. I, I yeah. just I really want to know what was happening in defendant lobby number four. But they just uh, use like a random number generator every time you go to the lobby. How many how many lobbies does this courtroom have? Come on. At least four. And each one has the same painting on the wall. That's four in base twelve. <laughs> it sure, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how that works. But uh yeah, so things are not looking too good. Um you know, Mia says, you know, that she's sorry. She guessed she was wrong, that there really isn't anything they were missing. Um, Mm -hmm. She explains that, yeah, Sal's testimony proves that the people in the trailer couldn't have gone to Studio One. Mm -hmm. Um, So at this point, Will kind of speaks up. You know, he seems pretty worried. He says that it seems like everyone in the courtroom thinks that he did it. They think he's a murderer, which, yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, But Mm -hmm. Mia gives him some words of encouragement, right? Yeah. She says that if he is innocent, they will prove it. She guarantees it. Um, so, yeah, she she says that, um, you know, he's the steel samurai. He's hero. He's a hero to the children everywhere. Um, and before they go, I wonder back if in, Mia is like a low key steel samurai fan. We know that Maya is. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. And I'm not talking like she's just a fan of the Steel Samurai, like, you know, to humor Maya or like, you know, just as a way to bond with Maya. I think she's like on the Steel Samurai fan forums. And like, I, I think like, you know, she's got like Steel Samurai merch and like she's watched, she has the DVD box set. Like, yeah, I, I actually I could totally see that. But uh, yeah, before they head back into the courtroom. Mia gives some words of encouragement to Phoenix as well. She says, okay, Phoenix, this one's for the kids. Let's do it. And they head back into the courtroom. So, um, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, uh, they went into the defendant's lobby at 11.04 a.m. And they go back into the courtroom at 11.15 a.m. So the recess was actually 11 minutes, not 10 minutes. But you know what? Close enough, I think. So um, court resumes and Edgeworth calls Cody as a witness. Uh, Edgeworth, once again, cannot get Cody to say his name. Oh, my God. It's so good. Edgeworth can never get a witness to say their names. But mm-hmm. he does respond to Mia. Mia asks Cody. Well, to hold answer. on. Hold on. Before, before you get to that, there was um, yeah. first Edgeworth makes his big show of, you know, saying like, you know, Phoenix is going to, like, traumatize this young witness with his, like, sneaky questions or whatever, which is just funny because it's like he's <laughs> the, like, shady, underhanded one. But then uh, there's another funny moment when uh, Cody first takes the stand and he can't, like, see over the top of, like, the podium. So they have to bring him a box to stand on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they get, like, a box of donuts or something for him to stand on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, there is just sort of, 
it is a funny interaction between all of the lawyers trying to assert themselves as professionals and try to bolster their cases, you know, on Phoenix's side and Edgeworth's side, while also trying to respect that not only is Cody a kid and they need to be gentle with him because, you know, he deserves to be treated, you know, carefully, but also sort of like they don't want to look bad to the court as a whole if they bully a child. So like on, on both sides, you can see them like trying to run the calculus on how to handle Cody. So yeah, after Edgeworth gets a box for him and Mia, you know, gives him some encouragement to answer Edgeworth's question, Cody finally gives his name. Um, it, it's briefly explained that uh, photography is actually prohibited in the courtroom and that um, Cody shouldn't have his camera. But uh, Miles explains that Cody could not or yeah, Miles explains that he could not get Cody to leave the camera behind and that um, he would like to get a a special allowance in this case to uh, to let Cody keep his camera. Which is funny because, again, Edgeworth has this reputation as, you know, this ruthless prosecutor or whatever. And then he like I think Phoenix made a joke about how he like ended up like negotiating with a child and like lost you're saying you had to bargain terms with a kid and you yeah. lost. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's really funny. And I love to think about how that scene must have played out between the two of them. Again, with like yeah. Edward Edgeworth trying to be this like dignified and like respectable professional and Cody just being mm-hmm. like a shithead child. It's really funny to me. Well, what's funny is, again, Edgeworth has this reputation for being a super tough prosecutor, but, like, basically every witness just, like, walks all over him. Like, yeah. everyone pour, like, everyone ends up, like, bullying Edgeworth with uh, two exceptions I can think of so far, which are Salmonella and uh, Detective Gumshoe. They're the only, <laughs> despite his reputation, they're the only ones who actually seem to be, like, intimidated by Edgeworth. It's, it's kind of funny looking back, like, replaying the game. Yeah. It's it's really funny, and I think it does characterize Edgeworth as a good-hearted person, honestly. Yeah. You know, it, it's a funny way of humanizing him, right? It's a funny way that the game humbles him, which makes him yeah. seem like he's not this monster that he's been described as, right? I don't know. Yeah, it's I, I think it's, it's, A, really funny. But B, I think it is also a interesting way of characterizing him. But yeah, so we go ahead and we go into uh, Cody's cross-examination, the the third cross-examination of the trial. And um, it's a pretty long one. It's nine statements where Cody explains his story that day, right? His testimony that day. And basically explains that he snuck into the studio, but uh, he got lost on the way. He saw the Steel Samurai outside of Studio One, and he watched the Steel Samurai take down the magistrate, but he didn't have his camera. So, uh, not too difficult of a contradiction to point out, since his camera was added to the court record literally like five minutes prior. Um, yeah. yeah, you present his camera to the statement, if only I had my camera. Um, mm-hmm. And Phoenix explains that it's pretty hard to believe that Cody wouldn't have his digital camera. At which point the judge has a quick interjection. Yeah. Where is this where you get to explain to the judge what a digital camera is? Yeah, you do. 
Uh, This part was funny. And like, I feel like even in 2001, digital cameras weren't exactly new. And the joke was kind of like, oh, this judge is old and out of touch. And maybe they included it just on the off chance that anyone truly didn't know what a digital camera was. But playing it like 20 years later, it's like laughable that anyone would not know. Like you'd have to be like so old. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's such a funny scene, I feel like, right? Because, um, you know, Phoenix is kind of giving Cody a hard time. You know, Phoenix just objected to his testimony. He's saying, hey, Cody, you shouldn't lie in the court. And the judge is like. Mr. Wright, uh, a word with you. And Phoenix is all worried. He's like, oh, sh- oh, crap. Did I put on the pressure too much? And the judge yeah. asks, what is this digital camera contraption you are talking about? And the funny thing, after all this, like, rigmarole to, like, talk about, like, what is a digital camera? Do they even explain it? I think he's just like, uh, it's kind of like a newer camera. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's pretty. That's pretty much it. <laughs> It's, like they yeah, couldn't they, explain they actually, like they don't go into details on the operation of the camera and i guess it's not mm-hmm. really necessary yeah phoenix just kind of yeah. hand waves it he's like ah, it's you know it's a new it's a new thing right and so yeah. i i mean i i thought like maybe in like 2001 they included it in like the off chance that like anyone truly didn't know but then they don't even explain you know they could have said like oh it's a newer camera that doesn't use film or it's a camera that you know connects to your computer but they don't even do that so that's true i think the joke is just i think the joke is just the judge is old and out of touch (laughs) yeah that's true they you're right because they actually don't really even explain any details about it um it's still pretty funny it's it was funny in 2001 so okay we it might be worth describing like we um don't ever know how old the judge is like he he refers to like having a grandson at some point and he's got this big bushy like white beard so he's presumably pretty old but the judge is ageless yeah they they said exactly that in like a future game right how the judge is just ageless he just he's yeah he doesn't get a full he's, name he's just judge you don't know his he's age. eternal yeah <laughs> i that's yeah i i think he has been that judge before time itself yeah it's probably he's probably the same judge from like the great ace attorney (laughs) yeah exactly in like the uk yeah exactly and he for all the time he has been on this planet he is strictly focused on upholding the law he is not interested Mm -hmm. in technological advancements but yeah so um cody admits that okay yeah he he did have his camera but he was too busy watching what was going on. He was too busy watching the events. So, okay. The judge asks him to testify about what it was that he saw. So we get another cross-examination. Uh, this one's five statements. Hold on. We, we might we might have skipped over some funny text that I felt the need to oh, sure. point out in case this episode is not already uh, way too long. Yeah. <laughs> there was, they kept, you know... Um, I said before, like before they brought out the witness, how Edgeworth um, made this big show of saying, oh, I'm concerned you're going to cause undue trauma to this young witness. So please remember to be gentle. And then uh, one thing I thought was kind of funny is if you press certain statements, uh, I think both Phoenix Wright and Edgeworth uh, refer to him as uh, witness and they correct himself. They're like witness uh, Cody. And then it's like they they keep trying to like be gentle with their words to like not you know, cause in Edgeworth's words, cause undue trauma to this poor right. child. But then uh Phoenix Wright is a joke that I thought was kind of funny. It's like, 
he's like, this kid is like tougher than most of the adults in this courtroom. And it's like, yeah, right. it's fair. Yeah, I, I do think that's really funny is that, um, yeah, Cody is not a like weak willed kid, right? He is not a yeah. sensitive child, but I feel like he, yeah. he plays that up when he needs to to his advantage. Yeah. Oh, um, he definitely does. Yeah. But yeah, it I again, I think it is really funny to see the way that Phoenix and Edgeworth try to sort of like save face by not bullying him. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like save face and also I think Edgeworth just like maybe trying to make himself look good and make Phoenix look bad like when he says, you know, how dare you speak to a child like that, which yeah. like from what we know about Edgeworth at this point in the game, like I don't think he gives a crap like you know about being mean to a child he just wants to like make you look bad so it's kind of funny like the dialogue but it seems kind of like disingenuous coming from edgeworth it's like how dare you <laughs> it's like yeah on, we know you don't care yeah you just want your yeah, guilty he, verdict he's definitely doing it just like for posturing at this point yes um, that's exactly it but yeah so cody testifies about what he saw um basically he says that the seal samurai went for the bad guy and then the bad guy kept stopped moving yeah. and uh yeah he's pretty vague right it seems like cody is being de deliberately vague with his details but yeah. this does line up with what cody had told mia and phoenix the previous day mm -hmm. so uh we get a few more details by pressing uh on some of his statements um we learn that Cody is kind of vague about the details around the killing blow itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, he talks about, like, the actual attacks and the fight, but when it comes to the actual moment of death, he kind of suddenly gets quieter about it. Um, yeah, he said, when you press him, um, he says that the Steel Samurai used his samurai kick and samurai punch and samurai chop but no mention of like the spear like the murder weapon right right and then um basically you got this impression that cody didn't actually see the fight yeah right that's that's kind of the conclusion that phoenix reaches or, um, or he may have seen some of the fight but missed the killing blow as you missed said. the killing blow yeah so basically the judge brings up a pretty salient question at this point right mm -hmm. which is this boy is a really big fan of the steel samurai why wouldn't he watch the climax of the fight yeah. right and the options are he couldn't watch it he was watching something mm -hmm. else or we could present evidence right yeah and um i was actually a little little stumped by this right mm, yeah. i was thinking like Okay, maybe he was like messing with his camera or maybe he was too scared to watch the fight or, yeah. you know, maybe he was lying and actually the Steel Samurai is the one who lost the fight or something like that. Right. So um, I, I really like this choice because, um, you know, I said like uh, the puzzles in this game or in this case are a mixed bag where it's like some of them are kind of, you know, random or whatever. And then some of them are you actually like reward you if you paid attention to these details. And if you open the court record and you look at the description uh, for the camera, it says that um, it's a, a new camera that Cody had gotten just recently. And that's how you that's kind of your clue to present it there. And the reason he uh, 
didn't take a picture. The reason he was looking away uh, was because it was a new camera. He wasn't entirely familiar with its operation. So he's basically, you know, futzing around trying to get this camera to take a picture. And uh, in doing so, he looked away at the critical moment. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, that's actually how it went for me as well, because I forgot what the right answer was for this. So did you figure it out by opening the court record? Or did you uh, guess? Okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah, I I had the same thing where I looked at the camera in the court record and the evidence said, you know, he's still trying to figure out how to use it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's probably it. And um, this is something you run into with this game where you're like, I have a pretty good idea of where the game's head is at. I'm just not yeah. sure if the game's head is in the same place as my head. Um, yeah. In this case, it was. Uh, that may not always be the case. But yeah, mm-hmm. so Phoenix asserts that that's why Cody didn't see the climax of the fight, because he was too busy trying to get his camera to work. And um, yeah, it seems like that was the case, right? Um, so he's asked to testify more about his camera. Um, (laughs) Phoenix seems to have made a breakthrough. He has a line where he says, welcome to the real world kid, or he, you know, he thinks (laughs) that, that. which I always love when Phoenix's inner monologue is just like weirdly antagonistic. Um, (laughs) yeah, but yeah, so we start the fifth cross examination, um, the fifth and final cross examination of the case. And, uh, this is such a small thing. This is so such a fucking small detail. But I I was like laughing. Like I thought it was really funny. Go on. The title of the cross-examination. And every cross-examination has a title. It's usually something pretty simple like what I saw or witness account. The title for this cross-examination is No Photo with a question you mark. What's funny is I I wrote that down just in taking my notes because I wrote wanted like a label for this mm. section, but that like didn't make an impression on me. I didn't think that was funny. Did I? No photo. Did I miss something or no, <laughs> no photo? photo. So the that the frame right the the frame where it says cross examination mm. no photo, yeah. and then you just mm. have a shot of Cody with like this really sad expression. To me, to mm. me. It has the exact same energy of that Megamind no bitches meme. <laughs> like, I, cu- I could not get it out of my head. Like, that came up. No photo? With, like, Cody with the really sad expression. <laughs> like, to me, it was... I couldn't get it out of my head. So You're gonna have I, to, like, make that meme and, like, tweet I know. it tomorrow. Just so your like followers this, can be like, Abby, what are you talking about? <laughs> that, like, this is for sure just a me thing. But I, I was like <laughs> laughing out loud. I thought it was so funny. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, cross-examination five. No photo? It's, uh, it's five statements long. And Cody explains that um, the Steel Samurai had escaped from the villain and had prepared <laughs> the killing blow. But yeah. as he was making the killing blow... The camera lens would not open up and he missed the shot. And uh, yeah, that's all that happened. That's all that happened, says Cody. <clears throat> so we get a few extra details from pressing. Right. And uh, Phoenix asserts that there's no way that Cody wouldn't take a picture at all. Right. Yeah. Phoenix asserts that um, Cody would take a photo 
right? Like, that's just something that he would do. And uh, Cody admits that, okay, yeah, he took a few shots, but he didn't like them, so he erased them. Um, So he adds that to his testimony, and uh, we're able to present The Path to Glory, the photo album that Cody had given us earlier. And basically, Phoenix asserts that Cody got a picture of every final blow from every live performance, and he keeps them in that album. And that if the Steel Samurai had just defeated his adversary... He would have mm-hmm. definitely kept a photo for that album. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way he would have deleted it. Yeah. And it's at this point that Phoenix has a huge revelation. Oh, I love the way they do this, where he looks shocked and Phoenix writes like, no way. And then yeah. uh, you see Mia. She said, we finally found the truth. This this reveal they're building up to, I thought was really good. It, it's a really good reveal. I think the pacing is really good. Because it's one mm-hmm. of those things where I think they thread the needle just right where you as the player make this revelation just as Phoenix does. Yeah. Oh my and god, it was so good. There are points in this game where I would say those two things don't line up. I I could definitely recall later cases where Phoenix has this big revelation and I'm sitting mm-hmm. there like a dumb idiot and i'm just like Like, wait okay what are you talking about right where yeah it's this big dramatic moment and i'm like i don't i don't know what it is that i don't realize the thing you're realizing right now Mm -hmm. but yeah in this case the the uh uh, reveal is pretty is pretty good right this sort of thread of logic that you know cody did take a picture he did Mm -hmm keep a picture but he didn't put it in his album and the reason he didn't do that Mm -hmm. is because the steel samurai didn't win oh my god and this we get uh cody as soon as you say that that the steel samurai didn't win uh you know cody's hero he just burst into tears on the witness stand we get you know pretty pretty solid uh witness breakdown here we get the pursuit theme starts playing and it's like yeah this is a good example of a an ace attorney uh turnabout right here it, where it's like so yeah. it's a great turnabout this is firmly the turnabout of this trial and uh the energy mm-hmm. is really good you know cody breaks yeah. down he starts crying there's a ton of like sound effects and the screen shaking they start playing the pursuit mm-hmm. theme like it's very chaotic right and yeah. among all of this there's also this through line of like i really felt for cody in this moment you know yeah you get this sense for how important the steel samurai is to him you know you have the conversation mm-hmm. with him earlier about how you know he sees the steel samurai as this like icon of justice and you know yeah. he he admires him as, you know, a person and also as a, you know, martial fighter. And mm. yeah, Phoenix announces the truth that no, the Steel Samurai lost. Yeah, um, well, that's what I love, too, is you have a lot of, you know, examples of like murderers and, and who lie in the witness stand, you know, to protect themselves. But I like this example where it's, um, you know, Phoenix Wright and. You know, Mia, they always talk about, like, the truth will come out um, on the witness stand. And it's, um, you know, Cody's not lying because, you know, he's the murderer. He's not lying to, you know, protect himself or anything. But he's 
lying because you know he saw his hero the steel samurai apparently lose this fight and like didn't want to admit it but you have the evidence right there and sure enough the truth does come out like this was such a good witness breakdown yeah yeah and uh phoenix lays it all out right yeah he says that we've all made a serious error right oh this the steel is so samurai good, yeah. was the victim but not only that jack hammer was the steel samurai mm-hmm. and yeah he he lays yeah. it out jack knew about the injury he knew old bag wouldn't arrive at the security station until later he knew that nobody would actually see him mm-hmm. leaving the employee area right um so he he yeah. waited for powers to take the nap in his dressing room and then he stole the costume and then mm-hmm. he waited until 1 p.m. when the photo was taken at the at the uh, by the camera, right? And um, he was able to frame Will Powers uh, for. I- so I absolutely love this because because we get two you know back to back like turnabouts or two you know epic reveals. One right after the other. One is that you know Cody was lying because um, from his. Uh, point of view his hero the steel samurai apparently lost this fight and then uh immediately following that you know edgeworth's <laughs> edgeworth's basically asked what you're trying to pull he's like no hold on a minute like the steel samurai was the murderer but you know this witness says uh the steel samurai was the one who fell like what's going on and this is when you figure out you know as you said the error we make was that um the steel samurai wasn't the murderer he was actually the victim this is like the truest this is like the ur example like the quintessential like turnabout here where it's like we have to like turn everything on its head like this is you know the exact not not only were we wrong it is the exact opposite of what everyone thought that um everyone went into this thinking that you know the person in the steel samurai costume was the murderer but actually the whoever was wearing the steel samurai costume of course now we know it was Jack Hammer. Uh, it was not the murderer, but actually the victim. And it's like, oh man, that was such a good reveal. It's like we had this completely backwards yeah. this whole time. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that it sh- turns everything on its head, but at the same time, a lot of yeah. things start to click into place. You know, because we were all thinking about it before. Yeah, like all the things. You know, this came up in day one when we were trying to basically stall for time. We were like, okay, well, someone was in the security camera photo um, in the Steel Samurai costume. If we're trying to prove that, you know, Will Powers, our client, is not guilty, it had to have been, you know, someone else. And we were like, well, who knew about his injury? Who knew to, like, drag their leg behind them to, you know, impersonate him? And it's like, we presented the possibility. We said, oh, well, it could have been Old Bag, the security guard. We kind of knew that wasn't likely. We were just stalling for time. And now it's like, holy shit, Jack Hammer was there, the murder victim himself. He was there in the morning during this run through. He knew about the injury. He could have impersonated um, Steel Samurai. The first time I played this, yeah. I honestly did not see this coming. I'm like, we thought this was the murderer and it was the victim in this costume. Like, yeah. <laughs> like mind it's blown awesome. it's such a good twist and um as phoenix lays this all out something kind of interesting happens right so cody follows mm-hmm. all of this logic right and it starts to click for him as well yeah. right he kind of remarks that like yeah the steel samurai was moving kind of weird right he he puts the pieces together yeah. and realizes that like yeah, that wasn't the Steel Samurai. 
that was somebody else. That was a different person mm -hmm. pretending to be the seal samurai. And I think yeah. when Cody uh, makes this realization, he kind of gets this renewed sense of faith, right? He didn't watch the Steel Samurai die yeah. that day, right? He didn't watch the Steel Samurai fail. Mm -hmm. And because of that, he yeah. feels empowered to reveal one photo that he did keep, right? Yeah, I love that. This is such good storytelling. I love that. It's like, you know, he poor Cody was so distraught for like a moment. You know, he's like the steel samurai never loses. And it's like, wait, that wasn't the steel samurai. That was just, you know, some jabroni impersonating him. Yeah, yeah. He, his worldview was both shattered and then repaired, you know, in, in a pretty dramatic way. Yes, exactly. So um, he presents the photo, yeah. right? And it's just a photo of the Seal Samurai standing mm -hmm. outside the studio gates. And it's not really clear who's in the costume. And on its face, it doesn't really give us yeah. that much more information. But Mia asserts that this photo is all mm -hmm. the evidence that we need to win the trial. And the inconsistency yeah. is with the number two on the sign. You could see it's just cropped out of the it's photo. It's so good. But you could see that the tower indicates that we are not <laughs> outside of Studio 1 in the photo, but we are instead outside of Studio 2. Yeah. So I love this because because we, we get this kind of, you know, low quality photo yep. from behind showing the Steel Samurai. And it's like, oh, this is not exactly decisive evidence. Yeah. But wait. <laughs> and then you point out the number Studio 2. The Pursuit theme starts playing again. Edgeworth freaks out at this point <laughs> yeah um oh and i liked this line that i wrote down something no <laughs> i'll turn it back to you in just a minute but i but yeah. i have to point out this line that the judge said, <laughs> he said everyone's freaking out about the number two he said please explain so that i might be shocked yeah. along with the yeah rest i wrote of the that court. line down too because it's so funny and it's like such a mood sometimes with this game <laughs> um so yeah after this like yeah. the the court starts to go pretty buck wild at this point and we enter the chase for this uh, trial, yeah. right, uh, where we are yes. now past the turnabout and mm -hmm. Phoenix is now on the offensive, making his case towards the uh, 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 towards the court. Right. And he explains that, yeah, the body mm -hmm. was found in Studio One, but the actual murder took place outside Studio Two. This is huge, right? Yeah. It's very significant that the murder took mm -hmm. place in Studio yeah. Two because that means Sal and D were at the scene of the crime during their break. It completely destroys yeah. their alibi. And I love this. Yes, because this is like we get like back to back to back like turnabouts. It's um, it went from, you know, this is their alibi, like, oh, you know, we were in Studio 2 the whole time. We couldn't have committed the murder. And then it's you pull yeah. like the Uno reverse card on them. And it's like, well, hold on. This <laughs> took place in Studio 2. Like it had it's not like this is your alibi. Like you couldn't have done it. It could right. only be one it, of you. It's two. such a good reversal. And I love that because these details, they yeah. start to sort of compound. Right. It's like on its face. The fact yeah. that Jack Hammer was wearing the Steel Samurai costume and got killed while posing as the Steel Samurai mm -hmm. trying to frame Will Powers, that actually on its own doesn't yeah. change the case at all. Kind of. Right? It, it doesn't erase mm -hmm. the alibi of D or of Sal. It doesn't introduce any new suspects. But then once we get this detail, 
that the actual crime scene was yeah. Studio Two, that blows the lid off this whole case. You mm. know, it's one thing so after good. another I thing after another thing. And it is so satisfying and the pacing is so good. Yes, you beat me to it. I was just going to say that because, um, as you pointed out earlier, like the investigation before you get to the courtroom was kind of long. It seemed like it dragged on. Yeah. But the payoff for it is so worth it because if, if you, you know, get through that slog of an investigation, you get, you know, back to back to back turnabouts. This Honestly, like I forgot how much I love this particular yeah, case. Like this, Samurai is for, for the middle trial in the middlest case, this is a great trial. So we we've Yeah. And and I was I was trying to avoid this when we first started recording, we were talking about, you know, yeah. case three syndrome or whatever. And I was like, oh man, yeah. I can't wait till we get to this part because I, I listen, I might be in the minority in this one, but I, I do I too. This one's this great. Case. And uh we have just a few a few final bits before the our, our defense is done making their case, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, after Phoenix reveals that the scene yeah. of the crime was actually Studio 2, he lays out his final claims for this trial. He claims that the scene of the crime is Studio 2. The person that Old Bag saw mm-hmm. was Jack, Jack Hammer, wearing the Steel Samurai costume. And that uh, Hammer stole the steel the steel samurai costume for some reason. Phoenix actually isn't sure why he would have done that, but he did. Um, and then the final assertion is that Hammer went to Studio Two wearing the costume. Now, yeah, and that that was great because you know you have um, you know Sal and D, the producer and director, who you know thought they had this ironclad alibi they're like oh we were in studio two the path was blocked we couldn't have left it and it's like well yeah the path was blocked nobody else could get there (laughs) one of you two like definitely is the murderer now and then this line i thought was kind of funny too uh when you were saying we still don't know why jack hammer we now know that jack hammer was the one wearing this suit the murder victim um we don't know why he stole it It seems still kind of weird (laughs) like edgeworth has what i thought was a pretty funny line when he was like why did Hammer steal the uh, steel samurai costume to cover up the details yeah. of his own murder? And it's like, yeah, I guess that wouldn't yeah, make sense. Edgeworth isn't quite done just yet. He has uh, one last thing. Yeah. He does want proof that Jack took the costume, right? And luckily, we have it. We do. So Phoenix is very confident in his proof. He has the bottle that we uh, that we grabbed earlier in the investigation, the sleeping pills. Um and Miles is surprised yeah. by this. He wasn't aware of the sleeping pills as evidence. Uh, but on its own, it doesn't prove that Jack had used the sleeping pills. So Phoenix has one last, like, yeah. really inspired idea. And um, that's to to mm-hmm. test the bottle, right? Uh, you have a few... Yeah, s- to test it for fingerprints. Yeah. There are a few options uh, suggested, either testing Powers' blood, fingerprinting the bottle, or examining uh, Hammer's body. Um, of course, fingerprinting the bottle is the way to go, right? The sleeping uh, yeah. the, the, the sleeping drug wouldn't still be in Powers' blood uh, several days after the trial, and even if it was, it, didn't, it wouldn't prove who used it. And examining Hammer's body would not tell us anything. But if we fingerprint the bottle... And Jack's fingerprints are on that bottle. That's pretty big. Yeah. So 
we don't get it fingerprinted right so away. I, just, I have to interrupt at this point because the judge has a really good line. Uh, he said, uh, things may have happened very differently than we thought. And it's like, that's like an understatement. I know. Yeah. And you know what? I do like this final scene with the judge during our little wrap up. Right. Basically, the judge says, we got to get this bottle fingerprinted. You know, we're sending it down to the lab. We're going to suspend court proceedings for today. And he says that Cody's testimony has revealed new possibilities. Those possibilities include that the steel samurai may have actually been hammer, not powers. Yep. That the scene of the crime may have been Studio 2, not Studio 1. Yep. And that those in the trailer... If you're playing the Ace Attorney drinking game, uh, please take a drink now uh, because the body was moved. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we should make like a, yeah, like a drinking game or something. Actually, you know, th- this uh, one like courtroom scene right here oh my god there would be so many uh drinks yep. just for the number of like back to back to back like turnabouts the the uno reverse cards yeah <laughs> um the the final thing that it reveals is that those in in the uh, trailer could have done the crime that they did have the uh opportunity so the judge gives both Wright and edgeworth some homework Wright's homework is to answer the following mm-hmm. question why would Hammer steal the Steel Samurai costume? Also, who killed him and why? <laughs> Phoenix Wright's like, uh, it's a lot of homework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like those last two questions uh, are kind of bigger than the first one. And then he tells yeah. Edgeworth that Edgeworth needs to reconsider his suspicion of Mr. Willpowers. And Edgeworth yeah. says, you know, very well, you know, as you say. Um, and then also yeah. finally, <laughs> poor Edgeworth. <laughs> I know he's being he's being very humbled. Um, Yeah. And then, yeah, the judge says that this is going to be the last extension, that the last trial is going to be the final uh, trial for this case. Yeah. So this is the first time that this uh, three day limit has come into play. I think uh, our our first case, um, you know, ended in just a single courtroom session. Our second one was. With two investigations and two courtroom sessions spread over two days. So now we've got our ticking clock. We uh, are about to reach the third day of this uh, three-day limit they have imposed on this uh, trial. Yeah, exactly. And um, that pretty much wraps it up. For this last scene, I, I do want to say that I do really like the judge as a character, right? <laughs> He's great. It's something that I was. It was something I was struck by during this wrap-up where he was sort of summarizing the facts of the case because... I feel like that, like, while he acts like a fool and he's used for comic relief a lot. Yeah. When it counts, he is a sharp, focused and impartial judge, you know? Yeah. And I love that about him. I, I, again, it is this balance in these games between levity and gravity, right? Yeah. The judge is not so serious as to be scary and intimidating. Yeah. But he's not just a complete buffoon who gets led along by, you know, anybody's argument. When it really comes down to it, he is focused and he is smart. And I like that. I I think he's a great character. That's what makes the Ace Attorney games their ability to kind of go back and forth between, you know, the humor and like puns and like ridiculous names and just like clownishness. But then you do have to have like some... Uh, seriousness like some stakes like yeah you know there's a murder like somebody's life is on the line you know your client that you're defending so it's so good I totally agree yeah. with you the judge is a great character 
it's something we've talked about before and it's something i keep being struck by as we play this game yeah so finally the case ends in the district court lobby where we have a pretty funny scene that kind of touches on something we mentioned earlier where mm-hmm. basically Mia Phoenix and uh, Will Powers leave the courtroom and they go into the defendant lobby yeah. and Phoenix and Mia are both like, whew, that was close. <laughs> we were basically on the brink of death there. I thought about just leaving and going home. Yeah, Maya said, or Mia said she thought about giving up three times and she's like, yeah. she's like, nah, I'm kidding. And Phoenix is like, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And Will is just standing there, you know, on trial for murder, listening to his lawyers like, yeah. you know, basically like, who that that was close. Mm-hmm. And um, he remarks like, wow, you two seemed so confident, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then uh, and Phoenix Wright uh, remarks, this is the uh, final investigation. And he says, I promise we'll find the killer by tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that final line sort of sets up our expectations for the next investigation, right? Yeah. Phoenix very clearly telegraphs to us, the player, that like, hey, we're going to find the killer in mm-hmm. the next investigation. Yeah, We have to. Those yeah. are the stakes that have been established. And, um, I, and then that's it. We get our to be continued and day two of Turnabout Samurai comes to a close. We did it. We survived we day two in court. Yeah. My my final thoughts on this case, mm-hmm. you know, are largely that the investigation for the case. Yeah, it, it's a little drawn out. But honestly, like we talked about, it does feel important to establishing the characters and yeah. setting up the pieces for this trial. Mm-hmm. As far as middle trials of middle cases go. Yeah. This one is in a really difficult position. But it does come together really well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, what's funny is I hadn't even heard that term like third case syndrome uh, until like pretty recently. It was actually my girlfriend who pointed it out because she's another oh, no Ace way. Attorney fan. And um, I was like embarrassed that it took me like so long or that I didn't realize until she pointed it out that um, many, if not all of the Ace Attorney games follow this kind of formula where, you know, the first trial is you know, pretty introductory. It's just one day in court, no investigations, you know, to get used to the mechanics, introduce some characters. Yeah. And then, you know, the second case, they, um, you know, start building towards this larger narrative that we resolve later. The third case in some ways is like almost like a step down in terms of stakes or this, this is where the third case syndrome comes in, right? Where it's kind of this side story yeah. that's like, you know, not connected to the larger narrative they're building. And then the fourth and fifth case is where things you know, really uh, get wrapped up the kind of plot threads that they establish in the beginning. Usually in these games, the fourth and or fifth case are where yeah. things start to get wild. Yes, exactly. Oh, um, my God. And especially when we get to the third game. But here's the thing. I, I think like the, the third case in each game kind of, you know, I feel like gets more hate than it deserves. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it's kind of a side story. It's not connected to this larger narrative we still don't know what the dl6 incident is we still don't know about yeah. you know, that incident from 15 years ago we still don't know you know we've established that the you know two main attorneys uh phoenix wright and miles edgeworth you know have a history we haven't learned any details about that so yeah it's true that this is kind of a separate like side story but it's a really good story <laughs> it's great 
And I think it is important to recognize that the third case syndrome, this concept of the middle section of a story taking a dip over the beginning and the end, is not unique to Ace Attorney. Um, In a lot of narrative stories, it is famously difficult to write and construct a satisfying middle to a story. Mm. Um, For story writers and for readers, introductions are very exciting. Endings are very climactic. It is difficult to write a middle that is interesting. So it's not just something that Ace Attorney suffers from. I think it is something that is difficult to pull off in any narrative storytelling. Yeah. But um, yeah, for, for what it is, I think this case does a really good job. Yeah, I love it. All right. So, Mish, what do you say we, we wrap things up and uh, save the rest of it for our next episode? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, oh, do I do, do I get to tell people where to find me? <laughs> yeah, sure. Go ahead. Where can people find you? You can find me streaming. You're prepared for it this time. No, I got this. You can find me uh, streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Mish Cosplay. Also on Instagram at Mish Cosplay. Uh, where can people find you, Abby? I can be found at Abersary at all of the places. That is A-B-E-R-R-S-A-R-Y. I stream on Twitch every week. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of the places. You know where to find me. Um, and as always, our thumbnail art is done by the lovely Hey Ricanti on Twitter. Uh, go check her out. Her art is really great. And otherwise, we'll see you guys next episode for the final day of Turnabout Samurai. Join us next time for the exciting conclusion of Turnabout Samurai. And and remember, the highest stakes that Phoenix Wright will establish are T-Bones. <laughs> I saw that punchline coming. It was still good. I was not recording this whole time. Are you messing with me?